Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you a, an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that, and then we devise a three-year plan potential. For our second meeting, then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. Thank you for joining me for episode 50 of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest today, Bob Murphy, who is the founder and print managing principal of MRP Realty here in Washington. Bob has 33 years of uh, history in the industry. He joined the Trammell Crow Company in 1988 after uh, a few years in the military in the U.S. Army in Germany and uh, a graduate degree at uh, Columbia University business degree and undergraduate at, at Notre Dame. Bob grew up in suburban Philadelphia in a large family. He's very much a family man. He talks about his philosophy in the business. He is, brings tremendous energy. One of the more energetic discussions I've had, and I th- think you'll, you'll hear it in his voice and his, his feeling for the business as well his, his, as the community. He has a very strong passion to help with uh, the affordable housing crisis in the area, and he, we talk at length about that. And we talk about his feelings for his uh, partners as well as his company, which is deeply passionate. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Bob Murphy. Bob, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. 100% happy to be here. And as I said to you a couple minutes ago, I'm neither old enough nor accomplished enough to be an icon, but I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about my company. Well, you certainly have done quite a bit. You've been here since the late 80s, so you obviously have seen a lot of things change over the time, and that's great. So, Bob, could you describe your role at MRP Realty and your focus day-to-day? So, I'd say day-to-day, I'm, I'm kind of problems and opportunity kind of person. You know, there's always something going on that's positive or, you know, and obviously there's occasionally uh, things that are problems that we need to work our way through. Could be a deal issue, could be something else. And then working with my partners, kind of setting business strategy up, I think is a, is a lot of 
you know, where my days are. Mm -hmm. Are you involved in deal, deal structuring and putting deals together too? I you? am, but I, but I, you know, there's not every deal. Like, you know, I, I was always player coach even when I was at Trumbull Pro Company. I was, you know, there's a couple of deals that I might get behind personally mm -hmm. instead of closer to than others, but I've got really great partners. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a fun run and uh, a really great group of people. That's great. So, Bob, let's go back in time. Tell us a little about your origins, your youth, and your parental influence. 100%. So, uh, mom and dad are from the Bronx. I was born in New York City. Moved to New York suburbs when I was young, but really grew up outside of Philadelphia. We moved to Wayne, Pennsylvania when I was in first grade. You know, parents, you know, I'm one of six kids. So, um, I'm, I'm the second oldest. I have a sister a year older. Great upbringing, great family life. My parents, I'm lucky, are still with us and uh, doing well. And, you know, my dad is a huge influence in my life. He you know, left high school, well, you know, finished high school, GI Bill, you know, joined the Army, you know, joined the Army GI Bill to go to Fordham, worked nights, went to Fordham days, ended up getting a, a job. He worked for IBM during the day. Really? During the nights, rather. And well, Was he in sales? Or what? Well, he ended up, and I think initially he was just really, you know, working with computers. He was telling me a story where he was trying to get a sales job when he graduated he said it was mainly Ivy Leaguers, you know, it was really tough. <laughs> so he ended up, uh, he, he was the guy working at 425 Park Avenue, which was like some Manhattan headquarters for IBM. And he would do the, the, the presentations, you know, they bring it, the, the salesman would bring customers in. And the guy who ran Brooklyn uh, won a big deal when my dad helped him give the pitch. And so he hired my dad for sales. Within a couple of years, he was one of the, you know, I forget the, the term he used, but, you know, one of the top salespeople in this region. And, was there until I think, you know, I should know the exact date, but I think it's like 68, maybe 69, maybe it was 1969. He left and uh, went to this very, very, very small company that uh, they built and sold trainers for this initially just like, believe it or not, big public utility companies that were working, you know, I, I guess, you know, power plants. And he took the business. It was just a handful of people. It was just, and he ended up pushing the work into uh Selling to the, the military, so selling trainers to the military. Initially, maintenance simulators, and then they got into gunnery and some other things. And uh, took that company public on the New York Stock Exchange. So really, just really, definitely my hero. Was he a C-suite? Was he in the C-suite? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was the CEO of the company. Yeah. Wow. So he largely built it, and his baby. Yeah. My mom is an amazing lady. You know, my dad because of his business, he traveled a lot right, all over the world. You know, wherever the U.S. sold military equipment to, you know, he was selling trainers as well. He was gone a lot. He was home every weekend, you know, with us all, but he was gone a lot of the weekdays. So my mom, uh, you know, was a big influence on all of us. She actually graduated from college the same year I did a week later. So raising my, my little brother was, was she, he was like, he would have been nine when she graduated from college. So she went, went to college for like at 10 night? years. Yeah, she nine, yeah, yeah. Wow. Really neat lady. And, wow. uh, you know, great, great siblings. I have a brother who's uh, born when I was in eighth grade and four sisters. Yeah, so everyone's really tight, good family. You know, everyone cool. kind of is clustered either in New York or down to Philadelphia. Right? Mm -hmm. And me down here. Yeah. So your dad's company, is it still around or is it? I, I do not think it's still around anymore. I think. Did he sell it or what ended up? I, I think things? what happened is after the, after the Cold War ended, you know, you know, military sales dropped dramatically. Right. And I think he just got folded into another company, I believe. It did. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he was already retired at that point. That was good news for him. So did he have any interesting advice for you as a kid? As far as leadership and sales and any of those thoughts? You know, I think it's more, he was, he was definitely focused. Like, you know, when I was going to college, for example, 
And he's like, yeah, you got to take engineering, you know, and no, I would have been a horrible engineer. I did take engineering. <laughs> I graduated. I did, I did get a degree in it, but it wasn't, wasn't, the, it wasn't the highest key. Um, Why did he say take engineering? Just what, what was the... Uh, he, he, he thinks that, he thought that a quantitative background was helpful. And yeah, I, I, I could have done finance as well, but I did finance for my MBA. But I, th- I think he thought the undergraduate in, in, you know, really digging into the quant side was important. And the rest of it you can learn, I think, was his thought. Mm-hmm. And that's what he studied. He studied accounting. Oh. <laughs> Stuck me in engineering. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, that was great, though. You know, it was good. It, 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 when I did go to business school, I found the, the, the stuff that some of the people that didn't have a quant background found difficult. I found that level of math not difficult. So it was helpful at some point. It's cool. That's cool. And your mom went to college at the same time you did? So, oh, she, my mom started going to college, right? I think it was in 1969, 1970. I think 1970. Oh, so she just took a long time. It took to 12 get years, yeah. Long journey for her. But when you're, when you're raising six a, kids, <laughs> is this kind of a goal for her just to kind of do it, or did she have a professional goal? No, I think it's definitely a goal. I think she, you know, she, she wanted to get it done. And so that's great. I really, literally, I mean, they have a picture of me at her, at her college graduation week after mine. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, how was your growing up experience? Talk a little bit about school, high school, and all that good stuff. You know, stuff. it was one of those uh, great little small town. Wayne, Pennsylvania is uh, right there on the main line. Really nice little town. Sure. Um, I went to Catholic grade school. There was really same kids for eight years, pretty much. I mean, 36 kids, you know, half boys, <laughs> half girls. You know, it's hilarious. I, I remember uh, in like seventh or eighth grade, you know, so I played football, of course. You know, we had, we had a full pad football team, even though there was only. And this was parochial. You wore a uniform Pro- every yeah. day, yeah. rulers on the yeah, wrist yeah, exactly. and all that kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, play basketball. I remember the, the priest would come give out the four cards and he'd ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we'd all get up there, professional football player, professional baseball player, professional basketball player. And, you know, it, here we are, like a bunch of little scrawny guys out there uh, right. in the suburbs. And, you know, but it was fun. And, you know, you got mentioned before, just a great family. We really, were really fortunate there. Um, and then I went to high school, went to a, a rather it was a large Aston High School, Rochester Carroll. There was uh, 500 kids in my class. It was one of those days where it was co-institutional. So half the school was boys, half was girls. I mean, there was two separate schools that shared a cafeteria, mm-hmm. no, shared a chapel, shared a library, and shared an auditorium. Mm-hmm. Everything else was, it was only mirror images. It was kind of interesting. It, obviously, they don't do that anymore. But This is suburban Philadelphia. Yeah, this was, uh, this was them trying to get into, uh, kind of easing into co-ed, co-education, I guess. And then off to uh, Notre Dame. Yes, yes. Like I saw the guy who I visited. So when I, I was one of these guys that I turned 17 late October, my senior year in high school. So when I went and visited Notre Dame, I was still 16 years old. And I went out with a friend whose dad, whose dad, his grandfather had gone there and his father had gotten in, but I, I forget what happened, why he didn't end up in the But So I went out with this high school friend and uh, I didn't even really know where it was, to tell you the truth. I mean, you'd think, you know, being a Murphy and, you know, Irish Catholic, I would. No, it wasn't wasn't a huge fan. Probably because I think my dad didn't like Notre Dame a little bit because they stole Forbes' basketball coach, Digger Phelps. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but since then, I went there and he's had I would say he's had three two nephews and niece graduate. Actually, three nephews and a niece graduate. He's got or his grandchildren. He's got. Who there now and three graduated. Really? So, yeah. So he goes to London. Really wow, like so he, he's made the conversion over time. But it was a great experience. Notre Dame was fantastic. I, I went out, I watched Notre Dame play USC with Joe Montana's last year's fifth year. Yes. And great game. And was that in, in South Bend or was yeah, that out in, uh, out in South Bend? I, and I did early admissions and what was mm-hmm. in was 
you know, was accepted by before the end of the year, senior year, or before the end of the, my Christmas time. Yeah. So had a blast, had a great time. I, you know, did I played you look at any other schools when you were applying? You know, I did. I applied to uh, probably my second choice would have been Penn. That's a good school. It's a very good school in Philadelphia. I, I just think that, you know, when I get in there and everything else, I just think I really wanted to go away, away for college. And then uh, I just had so much fun when I was out there. I really wanted to be part of that community. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had a great time. Some great friends. I did pick civil engineering. I picked engineering initially, and then I had to pick a, a field within it. And, I, you know, I'm a pretty visual person, so civil engineering is just easier. It's dirt. It's bending things. It's twisting things. It's not electrons flying around. Or Is that where the real estate bug came? You know, I, I, I don't know. Probably not. You know, I think that just came when I came down and uh, interviewed with Crow, honestly. Mm-hmm. So you did Army ROTC while you were there to help pay for it, I assume. I did, yeah. You know, and, you know, my parents, I'm sure we could have pulled it off, you know, in, a, in another, you know, through student loans or whatever. Because they were still young. My mom was uh, just turned 40. My dad was 42 when I went to, uh, yeah. He was, yeah, he was 42. And, you know, six kids, right? So I went, to, I applied for the scholarship. Her name's not cheap. No, no, even back, even back then it wasn't cheap. No. Um, you know, I got the scholarship and I actually waved it off for, I didn't accept it right away. So I waited a month. I worked two jobs and I was like, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. You know, so I, I it, was, it was a lot of money back then. It was full tuition, books, yeah. and they gave you a stipend you know, every month. So I quit my two jobs, went to the beach and for the rest of the I was only like another month or so left that summer. I remember Animal House just coming out the movie, <laughs> and I'm watching this thing. I'm seeing Niedermeyer. I'm like, oh, jeez, what did I just excited for? <laughs> but uh, the RTS experience was, was at Notre Dame was great. I mean, it was pretty low key back then. I think they were just happy. It was in 1978. I think the Volunteer Army started in 73. I think so. They were really encouraging people to, to you know, and so they were they were kind of light touching you back then. They really didn't, you know, they didn't really didn't bother with the hair thing too much unless you were, you know, just. Yeah. Gross violation, but and it was post Vietnam, so yeah, was, yeah, they were just kind of like you know, yeah. you know. And I was there, so I commissioned in '82, and seeing about Reagan came in in '80. The change I saw between '82 and '86 was amazing. I was in a great unit. We patrolled the Eastern Border, 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. I had an absolute great experience in the Army. I was fortunate that it was peacetime. We did have a real mission, then we, you know, we it was Cold War, and we were, you know, patrolling the border. What was that experience like? You know, I, I think a couple of things. First of all, it was a really in hindsight, you know, as we as we talk about being Americans in America, it's different than when you're American overseas. You're American, you know, you, you know, it's kind of like, what are you? I'm from New York, or I'm mm-hmm. Irish, part Irish, part Polish, sure. whatever. Mm-hmm. You go over there, you're just an American. It doesn't matter where you're from, and everything the country does, you know, people talk to you about, and that, that was a good experience. And you know, one of my children lives in overseas now in Taiwan, and, and we've talked about that. You know, she and I have about. You definitely, people always are talking about America. There's a massive presence around the world. But, you know, but the, and the other thing I really loved about the Army was that it's probably where I learned. If I look at formative experiences, obviously my parents, number one. But, the, you know, the, I think the Army was right there, number, number two. And a lot of it I learned was, I think, the leadership side of it. But specifically, you know, I, I really learned how important mutual respect is. You know, when I was a platoon leader, I didn't know how to do everything that, you know, I mean, all the various responsibilities mm-hmm. that you would have had as a cavalry scout platoon leader. But I had guys that did that work for me. And so kind of similar to when I'm in business, I mean, I don't know how to build a building, but I have a great team that has this how to do that. You know, other things that, you know, I'm not personally not capable of doing, but I know how to hire people and how to respect their contributions. And hopefully I do mine and they respect my contributions. Were there any leaders of people that you worked for in our army that inspired you at all? And what did they teach you specifically? Yeah, I, I, yeah probably, um, 
a handful, but the guy probably stands up the most recently passed away, Kurt Norman, super guy. I think it's really this mutual respect where you can, you, you I know uh, I mentioned it like three times now, but yeah, I think you get what I'm saying, right? It's like, you know, more my, my father as well, like my, my mother, mother, father, they would treat whether you're the person serving them food or, you know, or a client that they, they, they would treat everybody, I think, very respectfully and respect what their contributions. And I think I've tried to do the same thing, whether it's people who work for me or with my clients or our customers. Mm-hmm. So then you, you had good experience there and then you decided to do what after, after leaving the military? It was a hard decision to leave because I got offered a command to stay. Oh, really? Chief Cavalry Chief Command, yeah, which would have been a, a, a really... In the States? or No, no, it was the same unit. It was, really? Uh, it was, uh, there in Germany? Yeah, it was a, one of the cavalry troops. So troop was like a company, so there were, you know, 100, and, I guess 100 plus guys, 120, 130 guys. But I, you know, just in talking to my father and everything, he was just saying, you know, and his advice was, you've done your service for your country, you've learned a lot, you've grown up a lot, you know, it's, you really should look at this. So I applied to uh, a handful of schools. I got into, not everyone, I did, you know, I, I got I got into Columbia and I think I got into Northwestern and um, Michigan, a few others. It was funny. The reason I picked Columbia, it's going to sound kind of funny, but when I was in Notre Dame, I, I played rugby and I was, uh, I was one of the co-captains and I still played here and there in the army a little bit when I could pick up a, a match somewhere. And I got a letter from the captain of the Columbia Business School rugby team saying, hey, you know, I guess the admissions program was thinking, told me I was going there and, or I was considering going there. So I got a really, this really great letter from him. I'm like, I think we're going to go to Columbia. <laughs> it was like some random, so you could random catalyst student. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I, which I did. So it was a lot of fun. Well, that's rugby. Is, is was that intercollegiate at the time or not? Was it was it more? It, of a it's, club it's, sport? it's still a club sport. Yeah, in, in, in most schools, it's still a club sport. But you know, you, right. you know, we played in the fall wherever the football team played. We would play. So I played in Michigan. I played at Alabama. It was great. And I, I still last match I played was 2014. I think my neighbors across the street had three rugby players and played at Gonzaga, and then. One played at Notre Dame, actually. He just graduated. Well, he probably knows my nephew, because I have a nephew that just graduated there that, that played. Mm-hmm. And I have a nephew that's a junior there now that plays second round. So they, they, they would definitely know him. Yeah. yeah. They love this sport. And so I, even even more interesting than that, when I was, so I was interviewing, so I ended up going straight through Columbia. I started in September of 86, got out in December of 87, mm-hmm. because my wife at the time came pregnant with my son. So I decided just to go straight through. And I, so I was interviewing with various investment banks the summer of 87. And Chris Hoover, an old, you know, he, he played rugby with me at Columbia. He got on a job with Trammell Crow Company. Chris is now the CEO of Peter Lawrence Company. So they used to work out in Reston and other markets in the Southeast. And he said, hey, you know, you, gotta, you should look at this company. He was also a civil engineer undergrad. He actually practiced, though, unlike me, he was driving around tanks. And he goes, you know, you should look at this company. So there was this book. He sent me this brochure they put together. Basically, the brochure was an excerpt from a book that was written uh, in 85 about the top 10 companies in the U.S. to work for. One of them was Trammell Crow Company. And the opening chapter of the book said, don't work for Trammell Crow Company unless you want to be a millionaire. So I was like, <laughs> I would like to be a millionaire. <laughs> so I came down and interviewed with Kevin Darty, who's still a good friend. And How big was the company in Washington at that time? You know, the, the way it was set up, Chris Roth ran the District of Columbia. Don Taylor ran suburban Maryland up in, you know, Baltimore, you know, towards BWI. And Kevin Doherty ran Northern Virginia. And I'm going to say, Kevin probably had, I was probably one of six leasing agents. And I think it was Kevin and uh, Matt Shee, Rich Previty, Lou Friedland, and all, and all those guys have gone really well. Had the retail group started at that point? Or no? Yes. Yep. Yeah. 
those guys were, were super busy. I mean, I still keep in touch with Jay Donigan, right? For example, and uh, right. run some other guys who like Pete Bob, Bob McLean. Yeah, Pete, I didn't know. I didn't know really. I mean, I met him about a handful of times, but I really knew the guys kind of his, his partners. And uh, so Kevin interviewed me and you know, offered me a job. And so I that last semester, I made sure I took some real estate, uh, a couple of real estate courses, and came down here. You know, married, two kids, eighteen grand a year, twelve grand draw, wow. and that's not a lot of money. Now at all. It wasn't a lot of money back then either, I got to tell you. <laughs> so. Can we can we go back in time just for a moment to sure. Columbia a little bit? Talk about, you know, your, your schooling there, why you went, you were a finance major, right? I was, I was. And, you know, and, and my, my undergrad grades were not great. My GMATs, I did very well my GMATs. I was actually at a bar at University of Pennsylvania. I knew I was going in the Army, Smokey Joe's. I was talking to these end seniors, and they're like, hey, we're, gonna, we're taking GMAT tomorrow, so we're going to go ahead and head home now. I'm like, oh, GMAT's tomorrow. Here I am drinking beer, and I was like, I should, I should take that as well. <laughs> so I, I walked in the next day, took it, and without any plans to go to business school or anything like that, I did super well. And I thank God because my grades in Notre Dame were not very, were not very good. My motto there is no A's, no D's. So I managed to do well. <laughs> Are you just an easy test taker? Is that I, I must be. And then I, when I went when I went to business school, I had something to prove. And I did well in business school. I was in a dean's list and all that good stuff. So you know, I do remember sitting down there. And, you know, one of those lines was to look to your left and to your right. You know, one out of four of you won't graduate, you know, kind of thing. And I was also, I think I was probably more mature at that point than any other time in my life. 25 years old, married two kids, you know, got out of the Army. Mature in the Army. Yeah. So, yeah. I've kind of become less mature since then. But So, yeah. So, that was how I got into uh, got into real estate. And you can imagine there was nobody made, being made a millionaire post-1990. Post it, was, it was a tough year. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Tough years. Yeah. Pretty much everybody, you know, a lot of the senior guys left, right? So why DC? Was it just a travel crow opportunity or what? I mean, why did you come You know, here? it wasn't, a, you know, I, I, our family's pretty tight and I didn't want to move so far away from a family. And I, I come through DC when I was in the army, you know, for, for a few months. Mm-hmm. I liked the area. I could drive to see my folks. I could drive to, we all go to the Jersey Shore. I could drive to the Jersey Shore. So I was kind of, you know, and, and the opportunity presented itself. I mean, I did. Talk to the. I'm surprised the IBs didn't try to come after you too. The investment. No, I did. I was interviewing with Shearson Lehman at the time, and I just oh, decided, yeah. You know, I, I think the real estate shit was much better. I'm, I'm very visual person, as I said earlier, and you know, well, I, civil I, engineering background. Although I forgot all that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but and I, I, you know, so I had a blast. I had Chris Roth is another I think about leader examples of my life. So Kurt Norman, I mentioned obviously my father, the Kurt Norman in the army. Chris Roth really was a, was a great. What was it about Chris that you found inspiring? Because I've heard a lot of good things about him. The biggest thing I liked about Chris is that he would give you your head, you know, like that horse term, you know, and then we kind of like let you go mm-hmm. out. And he, I remember the first time I talked about possibly doing a deal, and he's like, "Yeah, we can do that." I'm like, really? Because you know, it was a, it was a hard run. You know, I got there in '88, and you know, I talked to some of the, the younger developers here, including my son, who he's 33. He's already developed like five or six buildings with us. You know? That's great. Um, I didn't build a building until. I was 37. And then I built a, a bunch. <laughs> so Crow, they, the thing there, you have to lease a certain amount of buildings before you get your own development. Yeah, you know, I, I, it was a little bit different for me because you think about it, the, the company really had a 1990s really brutal time for Trump Crow Company. And really what happened is the the family and some of their senior partners kind of rolled up all the, the ownership. What really was left was the service platform, you know, and it was small. It was, it was really small when uh when you know, I was I was running Northern Virginia for Chris, I got he got that job. Rich Prevy, who I worked with for a bunch of years, good guy, um, left in '93, and so 
I was given the opportunity to run Northern Virginia for Chris. And then in 98, when Chris got promoted to run all the Northeast, I took over the Mid-Atlantic region for Chris. And so all these guys, you know, like I worked with Joe Stinius, Art Santry, Steve Schlesky, Dan Hudson, Bob Shigaris, a bunch of Drew Genova, on and on and on. You know, Spence Stouffer is here just now. Just you were there 15 years, right? Almost 18. 18. Yeah. You know, I started in January of 88. I left briefly for 37 days in fall of 1990 with Kevin Doherty. Came back to Crow. Unfortunately, I was glad they had brought me back, which probably did. Mm-hmm. And I had a great run with Chris. I mean, when we all started working together. I want to say total revenues might have been seven million, seven or eight million. When I turned the business over to the company in 2001, split. You know, when I ran the Mid Atlantic for Crow, I ran development and services both. So I had you know, 70 some odd brokers and I forget how many square feet we had in management. There were probably 25 million square feet in management. So Bill Grillo ran that. Great guy. And I got to do development deals as well. And then when the company split in two, Joe Callanan took over the services side of the business. And I got to go back to what I enjoy the most, which is the deal side of the business. And that, oh, that, uh, that opened up a bunch of opportunities. That's where Joe Satinius got his first leadership role, you know, for the company. And, you know, Joe turned out to be just a phenomenal leader. Did you influence him a lot? Well, when I took over... I, I don't know if I influenced you a lot, but I, I recognize somebody who's really talented. I'm, I'm good at hiring people. And I'm good at, I'm, I'm a good evaluator of people, I think. And it's not, there's no reason to have a correlation between being a great broker and being a great leader, great manager. I mean, it's a different business. It's a different yeah. business. I mean, like it's kind of coincidental when it does happen. And with Joe, I, I just watched him with people. So we, you know, we gave him the, uh, the shot initially to do leasing to run leasing in DC. And then he took over that whole business for Joe Callahan and ran the, ran the middle Atlantic until Crow, until Crow got bought by CB in the six. There's an award named after him, which is such a unique yeah. thing. So tell me what, what is it about Joe that would allow for an award to be named after him, that, that it's so different and so special? You know, I think about Joe, I just think about one of these guys that he really was good with people, uh, whether it's clients, people that work for him, he, for a young guy, he had a lot of wisdom, you know, like what, you know, listen, initially a lot of what you're doing is what you're, you're negotiating between brokers who are pissed at each other or fighting over commissions or whatever. Joe was really good at that. He's very Solomon, like, you know, split the baby in two kind of, and he'd also done it. So he was able to, you know, he had a real credibility talking to people, but no, you know, you don't want to call BS on that or he's great with clients. And I think he watched the, as, a, as somebody on the strategy side, well, you know, he was similar to me in that he was good at picking people. He looked at the team, you know, between him and him and Bill Collins and some others at Cassidy back in the day, you know, the, the, what they came up with and their plan to grow nationally. It's a hard thing to do. And, you know, they pulled it off wonderfully. So he had a unique, the new, what you said, it's really hard to be a good manager and it's really hard to be a good broker at the same time. He yeah, could do both. He could do both. And always calm, thoughtful, good with people. And really, like, if, you, if you look at people he's touched at, there's a lot. A lot of people that have worked for Joe Tinius, you know. So while at Crow, what project did you complete? What lessons did you learn from them? You know, the, the most fun I think I had was, I, I, number one, I think I learned how important it is to be close to your market. So I was, was doing a lot of leasing out in Northern Virginia and when, I, when I ran that business out there. And we did see how the market was tightening up. Rents had a, rates hadn't moved a lot yet, but they were moving. They weren't moving to new construction numbers yet, but... You see vacancy get down. Is this mid nineties you're talking about? Yeah, this would have been like 96, 95, 96. Mm-hmm. It's actually Spence Stouffer, who was younger than me, but he, so I would have been like, he would have been probably 30, I was probably 35, 36. 
and said, you know, brought up the steel and commerce executive six that, uh, so Tenniel's Pete Smarto had done, lost it to the bank, South Charles. And he would, you know, so we ended up buying that, doing that deal with Kennedy Associates, now Bethel Kennedy. And then we started doing a whole bunch of development deals. So did a lot, you know, did buildings in Herndon, probably eight or nine buildings in Herndon, a couple in Reston, three in Reston, I think. Lot down in Avion, which Kevin Doherty started in with Principal Finance Group back in the day. And then we mm-hmm. kept, Mr. Sure. and I kept building down right. there. Fairfax County, Tyson's, Loudoun County. Jeff Sherman joined us in, uh, I think, 99. We did uh, Boston Gateway. Was Principal your main partner in those days? They uh, were They were a big client of Crows. We, we did some work, a lot of work with right. Principal, a lot of work with Edna. And then one of the things that I think the, the Crow did really well was focus on the institutional side of the business. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and really specifically target institutional. I think Crow was one of the first institutional joint venture partners that most institutions had. Yeah. I worked for Prudential back in the 70s, and they were already massive partners with Big Crow. Partner Crow, yeah. yeah. If you think about it, too, it was, and you've probably seen these stats before, but percentage of pension fund money that was in real estate was relatively de minimis until really late 1980s and you know through the 1990s. And that's when you, you know, because part of that, like, you know, when you were doing deals, it was, you know, it was the Crow company with Crow family guarantee and some of the other partners' guarantees on there. You were generally borrowing most of, you know, most of uh, oh, yeah. the equity, right? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and a, lot of, a lot of times, you know, Prudential, you know, they were, they were doing those combo debt equity deals. Right. And it's just changed dramatically since then. If you look at, you know, I, I kind of look at what I do as a developer is it's a service. Just like brokerage is a service, property manager service, development is, in most cases is, is, is a service business for us. Mm-hmm. We're partnering generally with non-vertically integrated institutional capital. Sure. And then, yeah, we, you know, our job is to come up with, understand our markets, come up with a business plan, build a team around that business plan, and execute the business plan as mm-hmm. part of the services. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, having the, the Crow name on your, on your business card was a huge benefit, I imagine, both in the leasing side as well as the institutional relationship side. So if you had gone to work for you know, a startup company or something like that, your career would have been a whole different fall of life. Yeah, and if, if, you, if you think about it, when I joined Crow, it, was, it, was, it wasn't as centralized as it had to become when, when it became public. You know, when, you know Sarbanes-Oxley and everything, I mean, there was a natural need to really consolidate power, I think, in Dallas and really, mm-hmm. whereas initially it was, it was much more entrepreneurial where, there was power around the local offices and there was power and you know, it was more evenly shared. And so it, it allowed you to be very entrepreneurial, and, but there was some sort of light safety net, I would say. So on that, that you theme, might not get it with, you know, with your own company. On the theme, and that's where I'm going. So the theme that you just mentioned, entrepreneurial, how did, what was the pivot for you to go and, and start your own company? You know, I, I think I just, I didn't want to move to Dallas. And no, I mean, I was just, you know, I mean, eventually, you know, if you, you know, if you, if your aspirations are to continue to grow in the business, I mean, that probably would have been out there in the future at some point. I, you know, I, I think I, I kind of thought I'd done what I could do. I mean, you know, especially when the, I think I, I really enjoy not just doing deals. I like building businesses as well, putting teams together and building businesses. And I was able to do that. I had a blast with Chris Roth and, the, and all those guys there. We built a big service business and then we started doing development again from that. You know, it's interesting. I was in Chicago before I came here, and Hamilton, uh, Alan yeah, Hamilton, sure, sure. broke away from the Trammell Crow Companies yeah. and started his own firm. But 
from what I understand, it was it was still affiliated with Crow in some respects. In essence, he was like a local partner that kind of had a joint venture with them. And he had his own business for sure. But think about these partnerships that he was in. They would have had Crow family would have been in there. As right. Well. Right. So my guess is the Crow family was still. I mean, over time they probably usually they would end up dividing assets and mm-hmm. you know, at some point down the road. But I'm sure for a certain number of years he um, still a Crow family. But investment. that wasn't the way you wanted to do it, in essence, when you guys broke off. No, and listen, when, I, when, I, when we left, it was, you know, they're still friends of mine. They're all friends of mine. It wasn't anything about the company. It was just me right. just ready to right. do something different. And I think if I knew how much risk I was taking, I might have I might not have done it at the time. But would you have gone to, I don't know if Trammell was still alive at the time you did that, but if you'd gone to him and said, okay, Trammell, I want to do my own thing. You know what that is. Can you help me out? I mean, he did that with Mac Pogue. He did that with a lot of people. Where he kind of seeded a lot of new guys to do business. Yeah, I think it would have been hard to do just because you know, you're competing locally with you know the Crow team here. And listen, when, when when I left, you know, I'm a big believer in. I've watched people come and go, and you know, you throw a big rock in a pond, it makes a big splash, but then you know the ripples go down and then it's flat again. And I had no doubt that the Crow team here would continue to do well in the half. And Chris is great. And when I left, Dan Hudson took my job. He left. I think Chris started running it again with Campbell Smith. They have a great, they have a great team, great company. Mm-hmm. They were a top developer, I think, uh, two years ago in the area. So, good, good guess. Mm-hmm. So, talk about the formation of uh, MRP. I'm only half kidding when I say if I knew how much risk I was taking, I probably wouldn't have done it. But <laughs> I honestly was just 04 was a pretty good year for us. We, Ryan, Fred, and I. Look, so basically, I hired Fred in 1998 to work with my Steve Shalesky out of Northern Virginia on development deals and really a pure developer, uh, really very, very good one. Where'd you get it? He called me. He was a, he graduated from Columbia Business School or was graduating and he was looking for a job and I was an alumni. So he just called me up out of the blue. And uh, it was perfect time because I really did need somebody at that point. So I hired Fred. And then in 01, we've been like, I don't want to know when it was, but I know that it was after the tech wreck. I was supposed to be firing people, not hiring anybody. I met Ryan Wade for coffee. He would have been, Ryan would have been so 20, 29 years old. It's after 9-11? Yeah, it was after 9-11. No, it was actually tech wrecks. 9-11 hadn't happened yet. But I hired Ryan. I was supposed to be firing people. met Ryan, and he was doing uh, financings at the Phillips company. Sure. And I wanted to get back into acquisitions because development had stopped. So I was like, oh, this guy can come be an analyst, help me out. So I hired Ryan then. And then... I was always doing player and coaching, you know, and I had a couple of deals that I was working on with Ryan and Fred. Those deals were sold in them for the company made a lot of money. I got a nice bonus check. So those guys that, you know, on a relative basis. And I was like, well, it's kind of hard for me to really repeat that a year again, you know, which is probably incorrect. I probably could have done it again with the team I had, but so I, I just ready to try something new. So I went and sat down with Chris and, you know, um, told him what my plans were. I mentioned, uh, I did mention Ryan and Fred, and I said, no one signed anything. You should talk to those guys. He said, but I'm going to go regardless, you know. And the three of us, you know, went off and started this company. And Rick Sauce, who was my outside counsel, kind of my own sauce, real estate guy, counsel, was right there, too. I mean, he would definitely help us out in it and, you know, and was definitely a founding partner as well. Four of us. Okay. And Zach Wade joined within six months. So Zach, Zach counts in there as well because he's a big part of the growth of the company. So Chris said, okay, thank you for your, your service and good luck. Uh, well, no, it, we, we talked it? a bit and he, 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 there were some things that, that 
pro offered to, to do. And, you know, you, you know, I think when you finally make that decision, it's kind of, you know, it's a pretty, you know, especially for someone like me, I'm a very loyal person for me to, for me to do that. And sit down with Chris was tough because he's, he's a great guy. He was great to me. I still see Chris for a beer here and there every once in a while. I think I was just really just ready at that point. I don't think there's anything that could have stopped me. Mm-hmm. So did you have business kind of teed up when you left or how did, how did you? I, I wouldn't say teed up as much, but you know, you're in the market all the time, right? right. So there's things that, right. you know, that we liked. And so we, you know, we got out and we started doing business pretty, pretty quickly. We also had, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I always remember about Mr. Crow was that he would say one of his things was people that are successful. It's not just their boss that wants them to see them be successful. It's their boss. It's their clients. It's their peers. It's their subordinates. It's their, you know, consultants. We've been lucky that way. We've we have had people try to help us, and so there were definitely a handful of brokers and capital partners that came to us and said, "You know, we'd like to help you guys." And so, you know, we were able to. Have some old friends of mine from John Crow Company had left a year earlier and started a small fund, and they helped us out with some of the GP money. We had done business with Westward Partners and then Rock Point Group split off from that, sure. and they John were Cole. great partners of ours for many years. Um, still friends with those guys. Still in some deals with them. They were super helpful early on. You think about it, your comment earlier about the institutional relationships you picked up across. I was fortunate in that. I had a lot of people that I knew that I'd done work with. You know, we, I've done a lot of work over the years with now Bearings, but was then Cornerstone, Principal, I mentioned earlier, you know, you know, many others. You know, Crow, Crow Family, I was doing you know, some work with Crow Family at Crow. And I, I've never actually done anything post, post Trump Crow Company, but I've talked a lot to those guys. Crow Partners. We're in stuff with AEW, you know, you, you know a bunch of different guys. So you started just uh, office mostly? Is that what's the Yeah, I think focus? office. But when I when I, when I travel crook company, though, you know, you know, if you're developing in the city, there's certain areas where you have to have housing as well. Look at Chris Roth at Market right. Square. And we, we developed the Columbia Hospital for Women. We did a conduit project that at in Shirlington. So we were doing some residential as part of the mixed-use developments. So the way I kind of looked at it is office was the easiest thing to get going because, you know, you know, we had a lot of experience in that, but I, I also recognize that that's one of the reasons, you know, I'm jumping ahead of you probably a little bit, why we got into residential, why we got into industrial. The guy that I would talk to, for example, at JP Morgan for this market for office was also the guy that was sourcing deals for residential and for industrial. So it's the same guy. So obviously I didn't want it to be Bob Murphy's not pretending he knows residential. So we built a residential team. And we've got a great group of, of, of partners that run a residential business. And we've got a really robust business. I mean, right now they've got well over a billion dollars under construction, 2,000 plus units with a pretty massive pipeline. So the capital told you to, to think about No, that. no. I think it was more like me just wanting to diversify risk. Okay. All right. Now if like it makes sense. You know, yeah, having, been, having watched the office market, yeah. you know, the ups and the downs. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to, since I wasn't going to necessarily be multi-market, we have done multi-market business, as you know, but that was not my initial idea. And so if I couldn't diversify market-wise, I would diversify platform-wise, product-type, yeah. We broke ground on our first residential building in 2012. We hired Matt Robinson to join us in 2007. And so right, and Matt and I worked together at Crow. I had hired Matt at Crow in like, I think 2000, 2001. Hired him again in 07. I actually went to Chris first and had a beer with Chris. I said, listen, I'm telling you before I'm doing it, I'm going to go after Matt Robinson. I just want you to know, you know, just because I had had a rule that I didn't, I didn't want anyone to, there's no, we're not hiring anybody. 
we're not going to hire anybody from Charm Crow. I'm not going to pick anybody off from Crow. So I already done that with Ryan and Fred. So, but when the company got bought in the end of 06, I, I kind of thought it was maybe fair game a little bit. So I did call Chris up and got a beer. So I'm going to try to hire Matt. I was able to do that. And Chris said, okay, I'm going to try to keep him, but I got him. And then in 2011, we hired John Beggard and Kevin Shar, who had been at JPI. And those guys just built a great team. We got just a lot of really great residential deals going right now. I'm really proud of our team. Industrial side, so I mentioned before, Dan Hudson and I joined Crow. He joined a year, I think a year or two ahead of me. We're the same age. When I left Crow in 05, he took over my role. He was running Maryland. He took over my role in Mid-Atlantic. He stayed until the middle of 07. He left after Crow got sold. To CBRE. He went, yeah, he went, he went to uh, Panatoni and ran Panatoni oh, in the Northeast. Industrial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dan had done a fair amount of industrial because you know, think about it, if you're in the Mid-Atlantic region, you know, Baltimore Corridor has a fair amount of industrial. So he had, he had Dan had done everything, but he had, he had done plenty of industrial. So then uh, he was a car until um, 2013. And then at that point, Panatoni decided they wanted to get out of the Northeast, which was just a great thing for me and for our company because Dan and his partner, Reed Townsend, I, I hired Reed with Dan in 2002 or one, and they had a handful of deals they were already working on. They cut a deal with the Panatoni company where you know, they would just split the proceeds in those. And he was able to plug into my CFO, you know, our head of HR, our IT, our accounting department, our banking relationships, and just really. Well, like, when I think of industrial, I think of the Trammell Crow companies being the, one of the founding oh, yeah, industrial yeah, yeah. developers in the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. The tilt up buildings oh, in yeah. Texas. hundred percent. That's yeah. where, that's where Mr. Crow started was, was you know, but it, 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 listen, I'm sure, you know, Carl probably wishes he, he actually re, now doing stuff back in the Northeast, but it's a great thing for, for me and my partners to have Dan and rejoin us. And because industrial, as you know, it's just blown up. It's pretty amazing. It's incredible. And they have a big business. I think they've done 15 million square feet. They've got 8 million under construction now. So it's just pretty amazing. I'll, I'll get into that later. I want to, I want to pivot to, you know, probably your biggest project that you've done. Your, your company grew to the point where you could compete for almost any opportunity you wanted to pursue in 2010. You acquired uh, the property we're sitting in, Washington Harbor, a major mixed use, which we are in. In an earlier episode of, of Icons, I interviewed Herb Miller. The I love project's her. originally developed, original developer. And he spoke about the challenges he had with the Georgetown community in getting this project underway when construction issues. And then he had construction issues with the project. And working with Arthur Cotton Moore, who was the original architect, was an interesting process as well. Do you ever, do you, the next thing you walk out, the, look up at the facades there, and I just oh, scratch I my head. Oh, I'm just like, I mean, I, I was, I, I moved to Washington <laughs> in 1985 and joined the BF Saul company. We represented Aetna. Okay. Aetna was the construction lender on this property. $20 million over budget, right? Wasn't it? Oh, at least. Yeah. Well, if you look at, you know, brick is porous, right, as you know. And if you look at in, in, in seams or, or not necessarily good things, if you look at how many seams are out there, just these odd angles that serve no purpose. You know, it, it leaked like crazy. Now, you're an office leasing guy. Have you seen a worse layout for office leasing in the cut? In, in no, the no, I, you've actually, ever leased? You'd, you'd be surprised. You'd be, you'd be surprised because it, uh, there's a lot of glass line. There's a lot of glass line. You know, there's these fingers that are here that were driven by the Georgetown community, by the way. There's a lot of glass line. So I actually, I understand what you're saying about rectilinear floor plates being generally the way you want to be, but this is surprisingly, surprisingly efficient. 
It is. Well, you've obviously obviously honed off the edges a little bit. Oh yeah. No, no, we we um. So when we <laughs> think about this, so we started the company in '05. By 2008, we were 16 people. When you know the fall really happened, right with the you know, Lehman Brothers and everything, we, we dropped down to 12. We actually were able to find jobs for one already had a job for the other three people, which was great. And uh, all, all our projects stopped. I mean, there was no banks. Down to 12 people. Yeah. We, start, we started with four of us, grew to 16, dropped to 12. And 09, you know, we're all kind of staring at each other. I mean, you, you'd be calling your lenders up to like, I don't even know if I'm going to have a job anymore. Yeah. It was crazy. It was a yeah. really crazy period. It was hard. I remember Zach Wade and I mentioned Zach, you know, has joined us six months after we started. And, you know, he's an important part of our business. We were talking about, well, what's going to happen next? So I wanted to put things in perspective. So I'd been through the downturn in 1990. And I'd been through the the 01 downturn. And so, you know, Zach and I were talking. So I said, let's look at, so I can put, from my perspective, having been through those two, let's look at deliveries over supply because, you know, let's see if we have a you know, supply issue. So we, we did that. We looked from 1986 to 1990, totally delivered over supply and it was 12%. So we, you know, we increased the market size by 12%. With the 97 to 01, it was 8%. And then we looked at, I think we did six to 10 or whatever, even though we're not in 10 yet, but we knew no one else was going to start anything. It was 4%. So our take is that, right, this is really not a supply problem. It's not the real estate developers messing it up again. This is just a global economic meltdown. And what happens when that happens? Well, the federal government spends money. They stimulates the economy. Yes, DC does disproportionately better than, of course, we're the first to go and we do better. So we, we got out, we started buying early. We started buying and I think we closed our first deal with Angela Gordon, three months later, we bought the Hartford building in Clarendon. This is gorgeous building, Gensler Design. So did Gordon come to you or did you go to them? We got, got a call. Reed Liffman was with Sam Rose at that point in time. I know Reed. So Reed call, called. He joined them, them shortly after. Yeah, he did. He did. So, so Reed got a call from them and he goes, well, listen, I'm not going to get Sam. Sam won't do this, but you should talk to these guys from MRP. So, so Reed was the connection. And Angela Gordon were great partners. You know, we, we, we did... I think they're doing three deals with those guys. And then just interviewed Lacey Rice. Did you? And Lacey, of course, their whole company was formed. Uh, yeah. Around yeah. Angela Gordon. Or Angela Gordon's. Where was I going with that? Lost my train of thought. Angela oh, yeah. So Angela Gordon. We, we, came, we ended up doing three deals with Angela Gordon. And then we'd done a bunch of Rock Point, And then we connected. I think Angela Gordon was focused on, I think they were trying to do the Georgetown Mall. So they were busy over there, which happens. It's one of the reasons that you want to have multiple capital partners because. You know, Georgetown Park, you mean? Yeah, when they were by the Georgetown Park Mall. With the tornado. Yeah, that's and, when those guys uh, teamed up. And so right. we, we had done a bunch of Rock Point already, and Rock Point Sharp guys, they came in here with us on this deal. We bought this in, yeah, it was April 2010. We did between June of 2009 and the end of 2010, we bought, I want to say, you know, $600 million worth of office building. Yeah. In every market? In 18 months, yeah. Yeah, we, we bought in a... In Fairfax County and Loudoun County and Arlington and yeah, in DC. And you got it at pretty good deals? We got good deals across the board, yeah. I mean, it's only one deal that we didn't do as well on as we should have was Plaza East in Chantilly. We just sold that. We owned that for eleven years. We just sold it a few months ago. Six months ago. Mm-hmm. But the rest of them got like this deal, as you know, this is a pretty interesting deal when it when we bought it and uh, we moved in here in fall of twenty ten. What was the vision in the problem? I mean, what, what did you see that you wanted to take advantage of and, and exploit? It was, you know, all of us, if you think about it, 
the Crow office has been in Georgetown forever, right? Yes. So we all office. Built the building you know, 18, 18 years, you know, right. me generally coming here, you know, and sure. seeing the place. And right. uh, uh, what we all noticed that in the wintertime, you know, nobody would come down here. It's like going to Ocean City, Maryland in the winter. Who does that? You know, but you've got, you know, all the shopping there during the holidays. And a lot of people are in Georgetown. There's nobody coming down here. So I think it was a couple of different people have claimed their responsibility or, or for the idea but the ice trick idea definitely, you know, Ryan Wade and, and my wife actually mentioned it too. I'm, I'm my girlfriend. Rockefeller Center. Yeah. Right. And so it worked, you know, we, 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 you know, put the ice rink in and the restaurants, you know, did a lot better. We had 40,000 skaters the first year. We also knew that it was generally a sticky project when it comes to tenancy, office tenancy. And I mean, if you, you know, look at the, the various tenants that are in here, I mean, the majority of them have been here a long time. Why? We knew that as well. It's a pretty unique offering. I, get, I, I, I think, you know, being on the water here is wonderful. I mean, the, the air and light that you get in this building is great. Where else do you get these views? Being close to Georgetown is great. It's just a really great. And by the way, the, the commute, if you look at the commute, if you try to get over the, you know, over the East End now or in the CBD, it could add 20, 30 minutes to your commute. It's a long time. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So that's a big thing, too. And if you look at where a lot of the decision makers live or people who are partners in law firms, I mean, they're generally going to be over here, right? They're going to be either mm -hmm. McLean or Great Falls or, or North Arlington, you know, or they're going to be coming in from Chevy Chase or Bethesda, right? And Potomac. And then right. this is the, this is the right side of town to be on for that kind of user. Mm -hmm. And the retail, how did you manage um, that process? Well, the flood, as you know, it, oddly enough, it made it easier in some ways. Not at the time, by the way, but. It, 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 enabled, it enabled us to go and renegotiate with the various uh, restaurant owners. We had insurance proceeds that we could rebuild their spaces. And the chance to, a lot of the space configurations were, were afterthoughts, you know, where they simply inherited a restaurant that had been there before them. And we were able to really go in and look at the business they were doing and how we might want to reorganize the entire restaurant differently. So Nix was able to do that. They changed where the kitchen was and a handful of other things. Tony and Joe's as well. They took a little bit more space, actually. Where Farmers, Fishers, Bakers is now, they, they shrank a little bit. And part of where they shrank is where we put the, the uh, shrink uh, management office. Just, just touches like that. But, you know, it, the, the being able to renegotiate the leases. And was this one of your first retail experiences or had you done some retail before that? Not if you're asking. You know, I, I think it's, I never even thought about it that way, the first retail experience. I think we had always done some retail, but... This is, this is 80, 90,000 feet of retail. So a lot, of retail. a lot more significant. Yeah. yeah. It's not traditional retail though. So this is it's not, it's uh, listen, the way I look at it, people, friends of mine invest in restaurants and they asked me if I invest in restaurants. I said, well, I, I think so, but not directly, very indirectly, because what I found is that, you know, restaurants, they need to do well to really be able to pay the rent. And if they're not doing well, then it's really hard for them to pay the rent because they're just, I mean, they're, they're typically, you know, unless you're a big national player, usually, you know, you're, you're not, you're, I wouldn't say thinly capitalized, but you're not heavily capitalized. It, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a labor intensive business. And this is also a little fickle, you know, weather makes a big difference here. You know, when they, when they get their sunny weekends in the spring and fall, you know, all these guys do really, really well. And when it's, when we have, we have a lot of rain, they, they, they don't do nearly as well. But it's, it's, it's we obviously we got to know, Tony and Nick and Greg Kasten, just because of that whole experience with the flood. I recently heard a podcast with Danny Meyer, who's the founder of Union yeah. Square Hospitality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
he talks about the restaurant business and how they weathered through the pandemic. And it's fascinating what he said. You know, it, it's it was just incredible. You know, like I said earlier, I mean, it, it's even if you're a really responsible, you know, low leverage operator of a restaurant, you have no top line, you're over leveraged. So all these guys, so we work with everybody. We, we figured, you know, across the board, we, we work with our, with our restaurant tenants. And as you know, we have, obviously we manage this now for global holdings, but we have other buildings that have significant retail. We have another building on the waterfront, you know, where the salt line is, you know, Dock 79 and, and all purpose. You know, so we, across our portfolio, we had discussions and we worked with our the restaurant tours to, you know, to get them through this and get us all back in shape and operating. So once you've got this project going, you obviously then got attention from a lot of people. And I assume then that opened up other opportunities with in the marketplace. Talk about some of your Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing here was, you know, when, when the flood happened and the flood for all of us is a pretty, I don't, I'll never forget April 18th, 2011. <laughs> <laughs> but it was 10 years ago. Yeah, we literally took half the company. We're only 35 people at that point in time. Half the company started working on uh, fixing this. Wow. The other half of the company, you know, just keep doing what you're doing, you know, and I'll, I'll pick my head up and see in six months. And so if you look at what happened here, then we had to, we had to, Rick Soss primarily dealt with the insurance companies and various, you know, lawsuits um, that happened. I kind of worked closely with the tenants and then uh, Charlie McGrath, Fred Rothmeyer and some others, uh, Jim Dextino really worked on renovating. Who was know. the contractor for you there? Clark came in, really Clark. did a great job coming in. I mean, the night of the flood, well, by, by the evening of the flood, Clark had mobilized a bunch of, I don't know where they have all these pumps from. They, they, had, they had, it was great. They had all their guys it's out a here. a parking garage full. Oh, water. very full. 50 million gallons. Yeah. Two, two full city blocks. Herb Miller had the same problem. Yeah. His first year. Yeah. It was, uh, listen, I, we were fortunate that nobody got injured. The, we did lose some cars, but, you know, there was a pretty significant insurance claim because, you know, Buildings aren't meant to be like electric grid and such are not meant to be um, filled with water, nor restaurants. So, Yeah, I interviewed Monty Hoffman recently about the wharf. I asked him about the same issue, and we talked a little bit about this project. He said, we, we researched what happened here pretty heavily before yeah. we started construction over yeah. there because yeah. of what their, their situation. You know, it was the other thing, too. We, we, we bought this building. We were saying, is there any way – that you can raise and lower the gates other than having to call the mm-hmm. the 30-ton crane, you know? Because that's how they, they raise and lower the gates. And you had to give the guy a heads up and, you know, it took a few hours, you know, you had these license riggers that would, you know, and we and, and after the flood, though, we said, okay, we have to fix this, you know? And so actually worked with Clark. They helped us locate a piece of equipment that we have on site now that our building engineers can raise and lower really? the vast majority of the gates, yeah. They can do is this it. a custom product, or, or was it? It's a. I, be, I believe it's a. It is a large, large, large forklift that I believe is manufactured in Ireland. Oddly enough, um, interesting. Yeah, and you know our guys can do the vast majority. We, we have the. Uh, have you used it since the gate? The gates? No. Yeah. I mean. Oh, well, we use it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. in the spring. I mean, you know, it's not planted often. Mm-hmm. And then by, by often, I mean. You know, probably anywhere between five and fifteen times a year, really, something like that. And, and, and the way you know, we have different. You know, depending on the level of projected flooding, there's different protocol that, that we go through. Like we, we can just raise the gates along the river, we can raise the gates along the river and along the sides, or you can surround the entire project. You know, and 
the gate, there's gates in the front as well, gates in front of the garage. Wow. Yeah. So then talk a little bit of, now, so you had to take pivot half your company to work on this project and that took what, about a year or so? Yeah. We flooded in April and we opened, we opened the ice rink in the fall of 20. I remember sitting with Tony and Joe's with you right after, I mean, it was a party, I think it just opened. Yeah. And we were sitting in the bar and you and I were talking and I remember you telling me some stories at the time. It's yeah. like, oh my God, that's crazy. But it was, yeah, I didn't know if our company was going to be uh, around it. And I remember my CFO and I got on the phone, called up um, the Rock Punk guys and said, hey, do we need to get separate counsel? And they, and they called us back a few hours later and said, no, 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 we're, we're all together here. And so it was great. Really, really appreciate their partnership. And, you know, listen, it ended up being a great story. We ended up, the restaurants were rebuilt. And I, you could talk to those guys, but I think, you know, they, it was obviously a tough period of time, but they ended up with long-term lease, you know, options and new space that because they were in renewal period when the flood happened, the landlord owned the tenant improvements. A lot of times restaurants, you know, landlord puts in a couple hundred bucks and the restaurant tour puts in a couple hundred bucks. We owned all the tenant improvements. So we were able to get proceeds to rebuild all the restaurants. Who was your lender at the time? God, I shouldn't know that. I think it was MetLife, I think. Were they good with work? Yeah, they were, they, were, they, were, they were great. They were great. Everybody, I'm, obviously everybody across the board was great. You know, and as you can imagine, you know, you know who lives in this building, right? It's not just the, the I mean, Nancy Pelosi's upstairs. <laughs> obviously, everybody was, was out of here for a few weeks because the electric room flooded and you need electricity to operate an office building. So we had to get generators that on both sides of the building, we had ran cable from the generators to the various electric rooms. So we had it um, open... Three weeks later, I think we had we had tents back in. You might imagine there was a lot of handholding, but and it's a condominium association. Yeah, listen, right? we ended up getting it's to know our, all our tenants very well. We had to get to the condominium association people very well. I mean, the net result was it was not a great period of time, but you know, you end up with brand new retail. The ice rink, you know, was built. We renovated all. I don't know if you recall what these office building lobbies looked like initially. All new office building lobby renovations, elevators. You know, I mean, it was. Probably not the easiest year to go through, but once you get to the back end of it, it's like when you renovate your home, you know, or it's, you kind of forget how bad it was during the time because you know, you're in this beautifully you know, newly renovated. So this was probably the biggest corporate crisis you went, you've gone through in your career. Then. Yeah, hopefully it's, it's, it's the last. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, listen, we ended up coming out of it. You know, we, you know, like $100 million plus profit and three years after about it, including, you know, so the year that we flooded, we sold it for three hundred seventy some odd million dollars. That's phenomenal. Yeah, that's a big win. Yeah, it was a big win. Was that a foreign buyer? I can't remember. That was yeah. That was Principal Financial Group was the agent and advisor to a consortium of Korean pension funds. So Jim Howell made the deal with you. Jim did make the deal with me. Yes, he did. Jim did. Mm-hmm. I, haven't, I haven't talked to Jim in a while, but listen, it, it was it, it was definitely a formative experience for the company. Getting through that, I think, was, you know, brought us all even closer together, I think. So talk about other projects after after Washington Harbor, after you got that thing put to bed and sold it. So what other things have you, what did you start on? Well, I, you know, so one of the things that I did hear that I definitely learned at Trammell Crow Company is we are a crow, we would build, 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 and then the market would crash and we, you know, roll our sleeves up and say, okay, let's go try to buy. Right. Whereas at MRP, we decided from day one, we always wanted to be in the buy market. Always. So we, we have part of our team here, you know, is looking at every single deal that's being sold, even if we're not 
currently thinking we want to buy things, you know, just mm-hmm. depending on pricing and how the market is. Or, or, and so that was very helpful to us. And obviously, it's been a weird time for office, and especially in the DC metropolitan area, you know, not in other submarkets or anything, especially in the, in the, you know, the south and southwest, we've seen really significant office market growth. DC's been kind of, it's been tough even between, you know, we, we came out of the 2008 Great Recession strong, but once that 2010 Congress came in and we started with the sequestration discussions, I think we've kind of been, you know, in a, a tough spot for office and stuff. Doesn't mean there's not opportunity. I mean, there's always opportunity just about how pricing is. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of our, a lot of our people we do deals with, you know, are not really that focused on, on DC, especially not DC. I was going to so talk we're about fortunate this. that we got into residential. We're fortunate that we got into industrial. I was going to talk about this later, but I'll bring it up now. Uh, what do you think of the downtown office market right now? I mean, when you think about where's the demand coming from now with the pandemic and what's happened, it's tough. If you're yeah. owning an office building, what's your what's your strategy today? It's it's tough right now, honestly. I think I think so I listen I listen to Ali Carr's podcast with you and. You know, we're doing a lot of the same things. We have our heyday. So I think you have to be, the operator becomes even more important in markets like they are today, where you really got to work hard to get tenants. You really got to work hard to keep your tenants. You have to really focus on how we're using office space differently today. What is the tenant looking for? You know, a lot of it's going to be, you know, the, the hospital, for example, with heyday, our, our, you know, it's kind of an elevated management, property management offering with additional services. But our, you know, our building managers sit in the lobby. There's definitely more of a hospitality, a concierge type approach. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, you know, just the apps that everyone is getting nowadays. You know, we have we have we have ours. We think ours is unique, but I'm probably not the only one to think that ours is unique. <laughs> Some other things too. We, you know, we you know for, we I think we manage close to 10 million square feet, and so you know, we go to our various partners and building owners, and we have this concept called pass, uh, passport, which is you can go to a MRP conference room. You know, anywhere in our portfolio, including our apartment buildings, you know, if you want to get out. So that's kind of a cool benefit. But it has to be that kind of, you know, definitely thought leading approach Pro-active. because, you know, it's, it's changing monthly. Right. Pandemic obviously accelerated that whole trend, but the trend was happening anyway. So I think we, we work really hard on, on, on the service side of the business. We really work hard at the office piece. And, you know, it, it makes a difference. I mean, you know, we, you know if you go, go to 1501, I think, we, I think our opening party for heyday is there tomorrow night. And, that's just a whole different approach to, you know, and that's building that kind of had been limping along for a while with JP Morgan and JP Morgan brought us in a few years ago and they're pretty creative, smart people. And they understood what we were trying to do with Heyday. They basically, you know, were our beta case. We rolled it out there first and now we're, you know, we've moved on to various other projects. But I, I do think the operator becomes really important. We also talk a lot about right now you're, you're not seeing these tech, Tech companies, they're not looking to sign 10, 15 year leases in a lot of cases. You know, and, and they're, they're in a perfect world. You know, we found this, you know, I think you know, we ended up investing in a co-working business and then ended up running it for a handful of years. Obviously, you know, we, we closed it down after the pandemic, but we learned a lot about it was a great window into how people are using office space differently. And so with you know our town hall stuff and Heyday, for example, you know, we'll do furnished suites where we'll go in and you know. And you might not like, you know, it, it's, you know, you can take the furniture or not, and we'll, you know, you bring your own furniture. But what we found is that when we do this kind of offering, and the, some of the suites are getting larger, by the way, because initially it was like 2,000 square feet, 3,000 square feet, now they're starting to get a little bit bigger. We found that our term costs are lower as well. 
So you, you lose the certainty that a long-term lease gives you, but your term costs are a hell of a lot lower. And, you know, we found that we can actually, in some cases, ask a little bit more in rent. Interesting. Yeah. For, for that benefit. So what the tenant gets is they get the flexibility of having a short-term lease, the ability to move in and out more quickly. And for that flexibility, they want to pay a little more rent in many cases. One of my past guests, Dan Matthews, who ran GSA or one during the Trump administration, he stepped down in January, just joined WeWork. And his focus for them is on the federal government for WeWork, which is an interesting you know, angle. I think so, too. I'm a, I'm a big believer in the flexible office space. Mm-hmm. And I think, though, that the issue was, and Ray Ritchie said it so wonderfully to me, couple of years ago and he goes, Bob, it's really difficult when your biggest asset's a liability. <laughs> Never forget that. I just, I, I just walked away and I'm just going to be son of a bitch. <laughs> so, but I, I, I do believe, I believe in the offering of having some co-working in the building. I think it should be more of a management type relationship where, because in my opinion, having been on both sides of this as a landlord and a tenant, the landlord really effectively owns the risk. I don't care how big your security deposit is. You know, it, it's say six months, it still costs you more than six months to. So I think you're taking that risk anyway. So you should work out some sort of management arrangement with the co-working business if you don't want to have it in-house. We we do it in-house now because we, you know, we had the experience from you know running, you know, make offices. But I look at my perfect office building would be two-thirds long-term leases. And the remaining third, a combination of town hall, like built out spec suites and some co-working where, you know, the co-working platform, you know, the, the property manager, assistant property managers are also showing space at the co-working, you know, so it's kind of, it's pretty integrated. I've interviewed lawyers recently and I asked them that question. So you're, you're a 150,000 square foot law firm, downtown Washington, and your lease is coming up in three years. What are you thinking about today and after the pandemic, during the pandemic? And you, you're trying to get young lawyers taught the business and, and get them trained. And they believe, all of them believe, that you, it's really important for having, you know, everyone meet physically together to train. So it's, they say it's important. Yeah. But do we have to do it five days a week? No, not necessarily. Two, three days a week, yeah, that probably works. So the question is, how much space do you need? doing that and relative to where you are today. And I think that's the big equation that people are trying to figure out. I agree with you. And I think what we're seeing is that, I mean, it's a fact that as law firms have renewed, they're using less space. Now, some of that's digital transformation, right? You know, right. Large law of course. But, 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 but some of it as well is, is you're seeing people getting more flexibility. I will tell you that we all did all these Zoom calls. And, you know, if you look at our office, it's wide open like Trauma Crow Company used to be. Mm-hmm. And there's so much, you know, inadvertent collaboration that happens yes. by you overhear something and sure. you walk by somebody's desk and you might hear yeah. them talk about a person like, yeah, 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 what's going on with that thing? And there's just, I mean, you know, the spontaneity that you you get here is really important. And the, and the, and the culture, I mean, you know, it's, I mean, you can't create culture on Zoom. So I, I think the flexibility happens. I think though that in most cases you're going to see, I think you're going to see people, you know, back in the office, you know, more often than not. And I'm sure you read the same stuff I read about the various banks. Would you, you know? write a for, you write a 10, 15 year lease as a, as a law firm today? And why should you do that? Take that much you know risk going forward? That's the question. I yeah, think. I, it is. You know, but it's 
Listen, you and, I, you and I both know that office as a product type is complicated it's because because of the return cost. I mean, if you look at the Absolutely. real true return, oh yeah, you know it's it's a huge investment. And I, I do think, in some form or fashion, when when the coworking stuff started, it was a potential response to make the business better financially, so less term costs. And I think that flexibility is a good thing. For the tenant, it's a good thing. And with the right approach on the landlord side, it can be a good thing as well because you're not spending 150 bucks a foot yeah. you know, to rebuild a space. Back to my perfect my perfect office building where, you know, say let's half of it's long-term lease, half of it's long-term lease. I think you're going to see tenant deals that way too where they're going to say, okay, I'm going to commit to this much long-term. I want some flexibility on this other floor. To me, it seems like you have to partner with your tenant and say, listen, here are the facts. Yeah. I'm going to lay it out to you. Here are the numbers. Yeah. This is what I have to do for you to accommodate what your needs are. And if you're going to say, I only want a five-year lease, or, I mean, how do I amortize my costs? I mean, how do I get this covered? Lenders are saying the same thing. You know, how do we finance something that, you know, it's it's really hard. Especially when it's a, when it's a, if it's a single suite, for example, I mean, you know, generally there's going to be configuration that works for everybody, right? But the, when, when, when so somebody taking like five floors in a building, it's hard to do a short-term lease. It really is. That's why I think you're going to see some component that's always going to be long-term. I, I do believe that. I think it's, it's, it's needed. And a company can do it. And then you'll see a piece that, you know, they can trade in and out of. And that, but those floors that trade in and out of, it's going to be the way you lease an apartment. People are going to move in there. You're going to make sure the carpets are clean. You're going to touch up paint. But it's pretty much, you know, as is. You know? And to tell you the, truth, the way we all work nowadays with with very light laptops like yours right there. I mean, you know, you don't, you know, you're not sitting in your office with your pictures behind your desk, you know, and you know, you're a putter in the corner, you know, it tends to be more, you know, dynamic anyway. I think. Plug and play. Yeah. Yeah. So let's pivot to industrial for a minute. Cause you, we talked a little bit about it, but why, why did you get into it? And was it just, you know, I, I think it's like, and, a, and you have it set up as a different entity. It sounds like we do. We do. It, it's really, I mean, Dan reader, you know, and their team or, you know, our, we, are part of MRP, but it's, it's really as much a, you know, an investment, you know, and, and I, I say that out of respect for those guys because they don't need, they, they don't need any supervision at all. Did <laughs> they come to you or did you come to them or how did that start? Rick Sauce and I knew what was going on and we had talked to those guys before and I, you know, I, I never, I, I'm like, I think I built one warehouse building, very small one out in uh, Sterling, but I, you know, I was not a warehouse guy, industrial guy. Dan was. I've always liked the product type, and I, I know I know that my capital partners that I partner with have an industrial appetite, and so it was pretty. And, I, and Dan and I have worked together. You know, we're partners. It's been over thirty years since I met Dan Hudson, so you know, there was no vetting of anybody. You know, I, I had a skill set, his values, nothing like that. And same with Reed. You know, so it was really it was really easy for us. Think about it. Same clients, plus or minus, they could plug right into our platform and get right to work immediately. How much time do you devote to it? Personally? I just call Dan and say, like, what's, you know, <laughs> I don't have to really devote much time to it at all. As much as he, he ever needs, and he doesn't really need a lot from me. So <laughs> Rick Sauce, though, Rick, and my CFO, my general counsel, and our, and our county team, you know, spent a fair amount of time talking to these guys and helping out. Do you see integration between your industrial portfolio and your office portfolio long-term, potentially? No, you know, I, I kind of look at it as really separate businesses, but you know, if anything, I mean, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't know. I don't see any, you don't see a use no. case where there's no. going to be a melding. No, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see how it would help anybody, frankly.
we're very lucky that we got into that business because it has, as you know, the last 10 years, it's just gone nutty. I mean, you know, and I, I think this whole, you know, pandemic and people ordering stuff from home, I mean, that, that increased significantly. I know I never rarely ever ordered anything from home. And then all of a sudden I was ordering a bunch of stuff and sure. I didn't stop doing that. So I keep ordering, you know, you know, and we, we see the apartment buildings we own. We see the package rooms that we delivered in 2014 are a quarter of the size of the ones we deliver in 2020. So where I'm going with this is thinking about the office market, what's happened and what's happening. The evolution of buildings, you know, C buildings, let's say BC buildings, what happens to those buildings, you know, when, when you're looking at them, depending on the market. So let's say you're out in the Burbs, Chantilly or, you know, suburban BWI area or something like that. And it's an office, traditional office building. You look at it and say, hmm. I don't have a user demand here. Yeah. So what am I going to do here with this townhomes. site? Townhomes. <laughs> so you go the residential route as opposed to doing industrial. No, I, it depends on where you are. Like, for example, I, I, I'm half joking because we bought a um, Liberty Park out in, a, in, in Dallas Tech Center. Bought it from Liberty a few years ago. And there were eight buildings initially. Now there's three. We tore the others down, sold, sold them to like a rezone for townhouses and sold them. Sold them off. I think I forget who the buyer was. I think it was Sam. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. And, you, and you're seeing other examples of that down in, uh, in like in Chantilly, you know, here and there. Well, in West Rock Creek Park up in Rock, Rock Spring Park in Montgomery County, you know, we've seen e- EYA buy a former IBM building that was in right in the center there, yeah. Yeah. tore it down and built townhouses right there on that project. And, and then Marriott's headquarters, yeah. which just sold. To a senior housing developer who's going to wipe that building off and and do a senior housing community. I think you'll see more than that. I think you're going to see, in some cases, we have not done any conversions, but others have. I mean, it's converting an office to apartment is not that easy because the, the bar is different. You know, the depth of an office building is typically yeah, well, Think what, about downtown Washington. Imagine yeah, doing a building there and yeah. convert it to residential. Well, if you look at Douglas Development, did what, what, what Doug and, Norman <laughs> and Matthew Jamal did with their the the Coast Guard uh-huh. building. Yeah, well, the, I was thinking about the more of the Coast Guard building that they converted to. Uh, they basically took up a big rectangle and made it into an E, you know, where they, you know, they cut sections mm-hmm. out. Well, there, I don't know if you toured the, the uh, Hex Warehouse yeah. building. Great, great job. Where they have slanted floors. Yeah. And it's a little bizarre. It is, but yeah, I think they did a great job. <laughs> I, mean, I, I really enjoy Douglas and Norman and his brother Matthew. They're just, I mean, they're great developers. You know, you just follow those guys from market to market and you make money. Mm-hmm. So your residential portfolio has grown significantly since you started that thrust. You focused on DC, Philly, and, and Nashville mostly, mostly urban mixed use environments. Do you believe urban residential real estate will continue its attraction long-term post-pandemic? Yeah. Or are you considering more lower-density projects in the future? No, I, I think, you know, listen, we, we're always looking to diversify. So, you know, we, we are looking at some, some suburban stuff, but we're, we have a pretty heavy footprint in urban. I'm a big believer in urban. I was up in New York yesterday and, um, you know, just walking around the Chelsea area and it's rocking and rolling, you know, and I think that there's something dynamic and exciting and vibrant about being in an urban environment that I think, you know, really is important and I think works for a lot of people. You think the affordability issue is not going to be an overlay, you know, it's a, it's, listen, it? we, we all know it's, it's a problem everywhere around the country, yeah. right? And, you know, I give this administration your tremendous amount of credit. I think they've done more affordable housing deals than every other administration previously combined. 
it's just some of it's just the need. People are more aware of it. It's become more acute. You know, typically back in the day, 15 years ago, a lot of the product delivered in the affordable side was done by the not-for-profit developers. Right. And uh, the market rate folks, you know, probably the exceptionally like related who've always been in it, didn't really play in that game. That's changed and it's changed because the demand is so acute. The need is so acute. So for us, we, you know, we're used to doing a fair amount of volume. We've got a really good team. We think we can really help the the, the affordable community. The, and we, we can build side by side next to the uh, not-for-profit developers that are doing it now. And we also see it as our way to kind of give back and help out the community. How are you, how are you financing some of these projects out of curiosity? Have you gone into the creative Nonprofit space. Yeah, well, no, no, but you know, you know, there's some of these. Some of them are light tech. Some of them are deals where there's you need subsidy to right. to do affordable housing. It's just you know, I, 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 look at it this way: if you, if you do market rate versus sixty percent versus zero to thirty percent AMI, zero to thirty percent is seventy five percent. The rent you collect is seventy five percent of what the expenses are for the building. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, you, you're, you're not only not getting a return on the building, you're not even covering your expenses. So it requires heavy subsidy. And that's just, you know, be, so it's going to be a combination of what the federal government's able to do. And then, you know, it, it, the, the, the various cities and, you know, cities, you know, it, it's, it could be tough on, you know, a city budget's not, not an easy, right. you know. Does that govern your your supply is the availability of that kind of capital? Yeah, it, it has to, right? I mean, it's right. just, you know, it's, people complain about it, but, you know, if you, again, if you look at how much affordable is being developed even 10 years ago versus now, it's, and there's no, it's not like a light switch. You can dim up a delivery because, you know, it takes you an urban development deal. Three to four years. That's a fast deal because it's two yeah. years of, a year to design it, two years to build it. So you gave me a site today and said, Murphy, this is your site. I'll talk to you in three years. That's how long it's going to take. That's as fast as I can possibly go. And that's assuming that the community is on board, right? That assumes the community is on board. That assumes the financing is in place, all that stuff. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's hard, you know, and we, we, we definitely, we have a very pur- purposely built that as part of our, of our offering. And, and a big part of it is our wanting to give back to the, you know, to the city and get back to the community. 100%. Yeah, I mean, your website says you have 20% of your portfolio is in affordable housing. Which yeah, is our, our, pretty ambitious. Yeah, and right now we've got Northwest One Construction. We just delivered the REN, which is 30% affordable. We have a project in Ward 8 under construction. We just delivered another project in Ward 7 that's, you know, all affordable. So are these RFP responses or do you dig them up yourself or how, are you, how have you been finding these projects? Um, Northwest one was RFP, DCHA was RFP, our, our REN building was an RFP, the others were land that we, we dug up and we found the programs that are out there that could help us get through this. So it would, it would have been a combination of LIHTC financing and then the housing production trust fund that the, this, the city has. So all of these had intentions of, of affordable housing from the get-go? Yeah. None, and, none of them you backed into? And, or well, something. and some of them, for example, the REN, which was... The city was selling land right, right now, having university. Yep. And when Mayor Bowser came in and she partnered with Kenny and McDuffie and they, you know, he flew the legislation to require the city when they dispose of land to have 30% of that be affordable. Mm-hmm. And to, to do that though, you know, this is a good example of the cost involved. So we had one that site on a bid to buy it, 
I think it was 22 million, right around there, plus or minus. When the new legislation came in, we were negotiating our deal with the city. So we had to go in and, and relook at the value and the whole discussion with various appraisers and everything. And I mean, it's worth a million and a half dollars that, you know, to have a 30% affordable level of it, you know, that's what the cost is. What it does, it just lowers your overall basis. So your returns, you know, work. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, and that's, I, I kind of like that approach because it, it still costs you money, but the market rate helps you carry it mm-hmm. versus when it's all affordable. It's not an economic deal. It's just, it's just really tough deal. And, and I think too, the thing I like about the mixed income, I think it's better for the community as a whole as well. You know, it's not, I think, listen, after World War II, a tremendous amount of affordable housing was built. In some cases, you know, you're collecting all the poor people and putting them in one neighborhood that, you know, it doesn't always work. And you'll see at times, you know, you'll see the blighted retail, you'll see, you know, and I, I think even just from a jobs perspective, you know, I mean, you know, if you have a, Nice mix of incomes. Usually, I mean, there's going to be more retail. There's going to be jobs for people who work in retail. You know, yeah, I, th- I think it can be a real positive outcome. Well, it's interesting. I heard the word gentrification used, as they call it, the G word. The G word, yes. Yeah. Which I thought was an interesting <laughs> analogy. Yes, I've heard that. I, 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 we don't really use that word. I think uh, in, investing in neighborhood and you know, those sorts of things. And listen, you know, when, when we when we build in in certain neighborhoods, I mean. We do a lot of tenant, a lot of tenant. We do a lot of community meetings. I think we built Bryan Street. I want to say I think we had 70, 70 different community meetings. Wow. To get yeah. And listen, I mean, this is us trying to tell what our offering is going to be and trying to you know determine what the community needs. And you know, and, and there's always going to be ten or fifteen percent on each end that you're going to you know that are going to be outliers on either either side of the the issue. But then most of the people in the middle, I mean, there's, a, there's usually a fair amount of commonality in what people want to see. So with such a wide swath of uses, geographies, and formats, how have you been able to translate your overall strategy to your financial partners? How do you compare yourself with some, some of your competitors like JBG Smith, Boston Properties, Ackridge, Hines, and your former employer, Trammell Crow? We're probably more, you know, you know, you got to almost separate out Boston Properties and JBG Smith. They are, they are completely vertically integrated, including capital. Whereas I kind of look at, I said this earlier, but I look at our business as having two different clients. One is our user, which, which could be somebody's running warehouse space or running office space Our-tenant. or leasing an apartment. And they're a really important client. If we take really good care of those people, then we usually do perform well for our other client, which is a capital. And I kind of look at, our capital partners over here are generally generally going to be non-vertically integrated institutional capital. We don't have, they're not operators as well. You know, whereas Ray and, and you know, Matt Kelly are, are operators and have capital. So we partner with those guys and there's a lot of them out there. And our job is to understand our market and product type and determine where we think the opportunity is and then come up with a specific opportunity and a business plan around it. And then, we have the staff to execute the business plan. And that's why we have, you know, construction managers, development managers, acquisitions, people, property managers. Well, it's interesting. I, as I, said, I mentioned earlier, I, I talked to Ray, Lacey Rice recently, mm-hmm. and, and FCP set themselves up to be an operator in the apartment and office sector. Yeah. And also our capital markets people, we've raised, now their fifth, they're on their fifth fund. They so are. Kind of took the JBG model a little bit 
but blended the capital markets in with the with the uh, the use uses, which makes I, them I, a little unique. I think they're like JBG pre public pre Renato Smith, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, except you know JBG much more a developer, much more risk taking, whereas you know FCP was more of a uh, buyer, fixer, seller type of. It's a fair amount of development too. Not so much here. Not as much. We've done it other markets. Yeah. No, I think those guys are pretty similar, honestly. Uh, I think um, they also, if you look at their, you know, they, their, their close-end funds, similar to the way JBG was before. The yes. Kind of thing. Have you thought about a fund? I mean, is that something you've you is you've tinkered with out of curiosity? You know, we we have, you know, but I, I kind of look at. Our biggest, outside of our tenants, our clients are non-vertically integrated institutional capital. Understood. The day we start doing that is the day we start competing with all those guys. So, and, you know, there's, there's other, listen, I mean, you, you, if you, you can go. It's to, a different business. Yeah, and you can talk to people that are in it. I mean, a lot of people that are in it have said to us, don't come in this business. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's, I, I, I like the way we're, I like the way we're organized. I mean, and, I, and it, it, lets us, it really does let us focus on our tenants and on our market. Mm-hmm. Not have because that's a, that's an entire the whole fundraising piece. That's entirely it's a totally different business. Yeah, it's a strategic decision. I mean, it's a major strategic. Decision. It is, but there are, there's a tremendous amount of significantly sized institutional capital that's not vertically integrated that's looking for operators. I mean, there's a whole list you know across the board. Mm-hmm. The various insurance companies, a lot of the banks, you know, the more JP Morgans of the world. And the foreign investors have been out of the market with some of them. Goldman, right? Morgan I mean, Stanley, all these guys. You I know, mean, I look um, at, at City Ridge, and that's that's Japanese money. Yeah. That's what Richard Lake has raised for yeah. that. They're a big home builder there. But off the street, mean. Yeah, yeah, City Ridge, yeah. major okay, project man. there. Yeah, right, exactly. So you diversified the geographically too, and what what was driving that? You know, it was really more. It's been more opportunistic. You know, where we haven't said. We are right now specifically looking at the Carolinas a little bit because it's close by. And we, we, we've been down there before, but we have a couple of deals that we'll probably do down there. And that's us being maybe a bit more thoughtful about what in the past, though. You know, we got to Nashville because, you know, Kevin Mohall is an old, an old friend, first from Equity Office and then from Wall Street. You know, he's working for started a company with the Walsh family called Creek Lane. And he knows us and he's, he found a deal and he was looking for an operator to partner with. So, it's great. He called up and it's going to be a great deal. I'm really mm-hmm. excited about it. Philadelphia, first, home. first guy we hired, Charlie McGrath, I think he was 25 years old, wanted to go back home and he had a deal. So we said, okay, well, let's go ahead and it's an hour and a half train ride. Let's go ahead and, you know, I'm from there. And Matt Robinson's from there. So, so, and then, you know, New York, similarly, you know, I have a lot of family up that way and we had a couple of deals presented to us and, you know, and it's been fun. I mean, you Talk know, about it, the difference between the New York and the Washington market as far as doing business. You know what I was really surprised bit. at? I would have thought it would have been more institutional just because that's, that's where so much institutional capital is based. It is not. <laughs> Do you agree with Ray Ritchie, what he said about the difference between New York and Washington? Yes, doing 100%. 100%. Well, my comment earlier kind of alluded to that a little bit. I mean, I'm friends with Doug Furstenberg. I'm friends with, you know, Doug, Doug Jamal. I'm friends Norman Jamal. Competitors and friends um, and, and a handful of other guys like that. You know, it's not nearly as... Uh, collegial? Yeah, it's much more collegial than that. Yeah. So, and that's, it's much more cutthroat up there. Yeah. But I, I, listen, I've met some great people. We've had a lot of... Now, did you partner with people up there or did you do these on your own? Both. We've done both. We've partnered with people and we've done some stuff on our own. So how did those sites come? Are you brokers or did you dig them out or what? No, you were, all, all were pretty much off market. You know, they were. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. With New York works like that. It's kind of interesting. They're, they're a 
fair amount of, of more off-market deals there than you see here. Here, things tend to be marketed, you know, and, and there, I think, less so. One of the things, you know, we actually work hard at down here is, you know, we, we like doing deals. Everybody likes doing deals that are off-market. In a perfect world, we're doing something that's off-market or lightly marketed, or maybe it's a broken process where mm-hmm. it, we try to, they, they try to trade it and it didn't work for whatever reason and comes back out a little bit later and, you know, you get another bite at it. Most of the deals that we have have been like that. Granted, this was not. I mean, Washington Harbor, it was HFF, Steve Conley, sold it multiple times, as he'll tell you. <laughs> but that, this, was, this was a marketing deal. I think here we just, we, we knew the real estate so well, being officing around here for so many sure. years, sure. that we were able to kind of come in with a business plan that was just good, but we were fortunate there. Mm-hmm. So let's pivot to your company a little bit. You were in development, asset management, property management, construction management, financial management. Why the wide-ranging vertical and horizontal corporate structure? Are there economies of scale? Does complexity become an issue sometimes? I think it's more kind of what I just said a few minutes ago about for us to execute our business plan, that's the staff we need. And generally, you know, on the financial planning, that's more really reporting, right? So we work for institutional investors. Right. A lot they want us to do at the operator level, mm-hmm. you know, between our between our property manager and our accounting team. We don't self, self-reform we're not general contractors, right? But we have construction managers that are all over the GCs and you know, you know, watch your money, watch the process. That's important to our capital partners. And then we don't do, you know, we don't have a in-house brokerage, you know, but we're very hands-on when it comes to leasing. And, and so we have, you know, Spencer for working with Zach Wade and some of our investment managers are pretty pretty hands-on on the leasing side. That's just executing the business plan, really. Are you you're not in the apartment management business? Though, right? No, we're not. Or not. That's a different game. It is a different game. I, you know, so I think that might change at some point. You know, I think it probably would at some point, but it's not you know, a tomorrow thing. Industrial? Do you manage your own properties there? We do not. We're mainly merchant building uh, industrial. That's interesting. So we're kind of getting in and out. Mm-hmm. So the office you do manage. The office we do manage. You know, and, and if you if you look at industrial, you probably know this, John, but it's not the most profitable management business out there. You know, and it's, it's hard to find any management business yeah. profitable once you have scale. Yeah, and and he and, and those guys they have they have stuff all over in the Mid Atlantic, right? From out right outside New York City to right outside Baltimore to you know, mm-hmm. halfway to halfway to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have the situation where the right hand and the left hand don't know what they're doing as far as you know all these different things you're going on same at the same time, or do you have a pretty good strategic handle on what's what's happening? There's a lot of communication. I think, you know, we're, it's all open office. There's a fair amount of communication that happens, you know, and we're pretty good about doing weekly calls in our various businesses. And, you know, you'll see the senior partners, you know, listening in on, you know, our teams as they talk about what they're up to. A lot going on. I mean, you, I don't know how many projects you have active right now, but you have a ton, right? We do have a lot going on. I think we have over 2 billion, 3 billion of active deals right now. It's hard to manage. Well, you know, it, it is. But remember, like, we, we're a super flat organization. You know, if you look at I mean, the company, it's, it, you know, it's, you know, we have people that, and there's a fair amount of communication that goes back and forth. And I, I do think it helps between our CFO and our general counsel. Those guys know everything that's going on because they're seeing every document. They're seeing all the monthly reports that come out. And then, you know, we do have, you know, I mean, our residential team, you know, you know, Matt, John, and Kevin, you know, those guys, you know, are kind of running a business. Dan Hudson kind of runs a business. Zach Wade with uh, Allison D. Giovanni and, and Spence Stouffer and others, you know, mm-hmm. Zach runs our office business. I guess where I'm going with this is how do you know what 
when you've gone to, I mean, you're over the, you're, you're, you're pushed to the point where you're, wait a minute, I think we need to slow down a little bit here. We're all in office, so we all right. talk all the time. We all know if there's a problem because, you know, usually it means it's, you know, either I'm dealing with a capital partner that has some questions about what's yeah. going on or someone on those lines. You've been through a Black Swan event, so you know what that can do. To oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Well, that's one of the, one of the reasons I really do like the, I like the diversity of product type. I think some market diversity has been helpful as well. And, uh, you know, we, we really do watch one of the things that, one of the benefits about not having a fund is not everything's crossed, right? Everything's not crossed. It's fairly right. independent. So, you know. It's just managing it all. Yeah. I mean, with all these different entities and that, it's just. But if you think about it, you know, I mean, I could talk to Zach, find out exactly what's going on in the entire office portfolio. I could talk to Dan about his industrial business. I could talk to Matt or John or Kevin about the residential business. And those guys all know exactly what's going on in their business and every, every little minute detail. That's great. So I, so I don't, I, you know, I, I can, I can jump in as needed. Back to my earlier, my first statement about problems and opportunities. <laughs> yeah. That's how I spend my time. So the pandemic, uh, how did that impact your employment, your employees, and your, your business here, as well as, you know, your tenants and how you manage? You mentioned earlier retail. You're yeah. kind of working with your retail tenants. Listen, you know, we, we got through it very much intact. I mean, we, we had a strong balance sheet going in. We had a strong balance sheet coming out. You know, obviously, we didn't lose any people. I would to anything. And you know, I think the... The biggest thing we saw, we had already been planning and expecting continued, continuing ongoing change in office use. We're already kind of working on that. This definitely accelerated it, but I think we're already ahead of the curve. And I think a lot of that was our getting in, you know, DC, as we talked about earlier, the office spot here has already been tough. So we're already kind of trying to figure out how we can address, how we're using space differently, what can we do to fix things. So I feel like we were pretty much on top of that. We have a really good management team on the property management side. And on the apartment side, listen, you know, we, we delivered Marin, which is right next to Dock 79. So right kind of behind the home plate entrance. So the baseball right in the water. Delivered that March 17th, 2020. So March 13th was when everybody kind of went home, right? And we were fully leased by the end of 2020. So I had rates that were above or better or at or above pro forma. I mean, it was just, so we, we really, you know, obviously in the fall of 20 outside of the merit, we did have some other product where it was slower than we would have liked to have seen, but that's changed. We're now like, we delivered a phase. There's a three built, three different buildings in our phase one of Bryant street, Bryant street, big mixed use project on Rhode Island Avenue. And the first one we delivered in November of 2020, I believe October, November. And it was slow. Really, really slow. Now we're ninety percent leased. I mean, it just like once. I think once. What was the tipping point? I think once the CDC announced that you know came out like out of the blue and announced you know no more masking and you know you can you know you know indoors or outdoors. I think people started saying, okay, mom, I'm going to leave. The all the, the we, we, we mixed the whole generation. We mixed right. the whole year of college grads. Sure. That didn't leave space, right? So they're all like, are they ready to get out of their parents' basement or out of their friends, you know, spare you know bedroom and. And so, and you, you probably saw the stats. I mean, Delta came out and said that the metropolitan area leasing and the district leasing were the highest ever recorded. Rates are off, though. I mean, r- r- rates have rates have been off. A lot off. of concessions. But, right? Yeah, rates rates were probably got as probably at one point ten plus percent off. Well, you had a big supply issue in apartments. Yeah, 
Well, that's why the delivery has really helped me. Doing that kind of delivery was was, was super beneficial. And then they, listen, there's still a lot of a lot, a lot of product coming out there. But you know, it's amazing. Like if you if you go through, you know, whether it's Noma or the ballpark area. I mean, look at the ballpark area. Tn seven we delivered the only apartment buildings there were the three that JPI built with. Well, just last week I, I wanted right before our call, our talk, I want to just drive around and look at some stuff. I, you know, I hadn't been down to Southwest in a long, long time. I mean, I, I've been to the Wharf, but that's yeah. it. But I went down to Buzzard's Point and that oh, yeah. area down there. Lot I could not believe what was happening. Yeah. So much happening. Yeah. You take that through, you go. On the other points, you know, southwest, you go to the southeast side, you go from 395 yeah. to the river, it's pretty much filled in. The Navy Yard's done, basically. Yeah, well, they, they, they've got a fair amount more. Yeah, they, all those parking lots to the east of the ballpark. But, but yeah, I mean, and, but be, but everything, everything I think, above M Street, between M Street, yeah. it's pretty much been built. Yeah, and then I go up to Noma, and it's just, yeah. it's just gangbusters up there. It's incredible. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's I, I, I bike the city a lot. I have this loop I do. I start in, in George. I start here, bike me to Shaw, go through Shaw, over through Bloomingdale to sure. Rhode Island Avenue and around mm-hmm. Catholic and then come yeah. down the MBT, the bike path, mm-hmm. the Noma, and you jump Papa Union Market and you can take 6th Street, mile and a half south, and next thing you know, or 4th Street, a mile and a half south, and you're in the middle of the Navy Yard, southeast. Yeah. You know, loop back through uh, Buzzard Point and the wharf and back. It's, it's about 17 miles and you really get to see. I mean, there's so much going on. Well, the city is all-time growth, you know, spectrum, right? So let's let's go to you talking a little bit about the pandemic office building adapt, adaptation. Let's get into sustainability a little bit and, and some of the, you know, ESG issues that environment, yeah. you know, looking at today, you know, with this whole air thing. And then just literally today, the CDC is now in certain jurisdictions around the country, putting masks back on, you know, advocating that. And some governments are going to start reimposing mask, mask mandates again, yeah, is which it? is not necessarily a good news for any office owner, certainly. I think on the, uh, listen, I mean, I, on the on the S side, I think our contributions there are, are affordable housing and you know, yes. what we could do there to help. You know, on the environmental side, you know, we're always, whether it's LEED or, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, very... I think thought forward there. I think on the building system side, you know, whether it's new filtration systems or I know when we're designing new buildings, we're looking at, you know, mechanical systems that bring in more fresh air, DOAs and things like that along those lines. You know what am I missing? I mean, yeah. Well, I was going to get in the next to talking a little bit about uh, some of the social strife that we've been dealing with yeah. over this last couple of years and uh, what's kind of what's the company position on racial and gender equity among your Listen, we, we, we're, first of all, we are, you know, we're equal opportunity and we are fairly diverse. I'd like to see more diversity in a certain number of our areas and some that we're, we're being thoughtful about. But I think with the company now is, you know, pretty diverse. It kind of reflects, in most cases, reflects the markets we're in. And we are, we, we are definitely thoughtful about that. And I would say like 10 years ago, we were a lot smaller and it was, I think it was less visible to the world, but we are much more thoughtful now about how we look at candidates and try to make sure that we provide opportunity for as many people out there as we can. And, and, when, and I think in many ways, we should reflect, you know, who our clients are, and, you yes. know, whether it's on the corporate side or the, yeah. So 
any other trends you're seeing that may be opportunities going forward for you and the company? I mean, you've got a lot going on, but is there anything interesting that you're seeing out there that maybe other people aren't aware of about what you what you want to do? I'm a very positive person. I think you have to be positive to be an optimist to be a developer. Absolutely. I do think my comment earlier about this administration doing more affordable housing than all the administrations combined, it just takes a while to make a change. I do think you're going to see change. Unfortunately, you know, like we said before, you can't quick as you can possibly build a building is probably realistically four years. So it takes time. And, you know, I mean, no one was really thinking about affordable housing. I mean, the first IZ legislation came out, I believe, 2010. It doesn't go back that far. And we've made real progress. I always think it's important. I even look at our business over the years. I mean, you can look at today versus yesterday. But if you look at snapshot over a period of time and you can see real change happening. And I, and I do think it's happening. It's just. No, I think number one is awareness. Number two is programs to to address those changes that we need to see. And listen, I mean, unfortunately, there was examples on both ends of the spectrum. You know, whether it was some of the rioting that happened in May and June, or whether it was the rioting that happened in January. You know, and, mm-hmm. and most of us here are in the middle, are just trying to you know lead our lives, right? And I, I think when we we were dealing with all the you know, what would happen last spring, you know, that, that was just. It, I think for all of us, and especially in leadership roles, we all took a step back and see what can we do to help, you know. And, and, and we definitely, as a company, we, we've been very thoughtful about that and very thoughtful about making sure we take care of our team. And when we had the opportunity to help people, the opportunity to bring in new team members that, you know, that are deserving of, you know, that, that, need, that, need, that need an opportunity, we really try to work and make that happen. So what is your filter for opportunities? How, how does your lens vary from other developers like JBG Smith or Stonebridge or who also develop large mixed-use projects? I think we're, pre- you know, one thing I think we're pretty good at, I think we're, we're pretty good at the whole risk-return, you know, dynamic that you always deal with. And I think if we miss things, I mean, that raise comment was pretty funny about, there have been a couple of deals I missed that I was upset at the time that I was like, Phew. Boy, I was a less lucky. But I mean, you <laughs> the know, best deals are the ones you don't do. Sometimes. You know, I, listen, man, I always, I always kind of look at it as, as when we look at what my capital partners expect from me and wh- where there's forgiveness, where there's not. You build the wrong product type in the wrong way on the wrong corner, you know, that's not good, right? If your timing is off, that happens sometimes. Now, if your timing is off because you're somebody who's buying a lot of shit in 08, that's a problem. <laughs> that belongs with those other ones. But you know, we stopped looking at, we closed a couple of deals in early 07, but they were deals we've been looking at in 06. And we stopped, we didn't buy anything until 2009. Because we just, at the time, we we're just like, this is not, this doesn't underwrite, this doesn't make sense. In order for this deal to work, the following things have to happen. There's no way they're going to happen. And so we can sit back, we sit on our hands and just watch and wait. I would say in the DC office market, we did do a couple of buys last year, but we're really selective right now. And I think there's going to be great opportunity in the office side. It's just like, it's, it's going to be driven by, it's, it's going to be a tough few years. I mean, I think we need to see some pricing change a little bit. Yeah, I mean, will land have to decline significantly in value downtown? I, I wouldn't say significantly in value. I would say it tends to be more flat. But if you do look at where leasing has happened, I mean, a lot of the most a lot of the new construction has done pretty well, especially well located new construction. That being said, the, the rates are you know the, the rates. If you look at what it costs to build now. You know, I, I, even multifamily, the, the deals that you would never build below a six yield, you know, it's hard to get capital. That's now in the mid fives. If I look at industrial, I mean, you know, 
cap rates have gone sub 4%. Yeah. So therefore your build to yield is going to be a little bit lower as well. I mean, IRR expectations now got to be single digit on, on class A product. Yeah, I, I think more. depending on how long your hold is, what you're looking at. But I think generally when we're building multifamily, if you're looking at merchant build, you're still talking about, you know, a solid, you know, call it like 13, 14, 15% return. Back to my earlier comment, I mean, I, there's things that your capital partners expect you to be good at and other things that you get a break on. I think we all, most of us know when we're kind of getting out on top of our skis and, you know, we, we've been pretty, pretty careful. We, you know, and we, obviously we have a fair amount of volume going on, but it's in deals that, for example, I look at our mixed use deals, you know, we've got between what we have on the waterfront and the ballpark area and Bryant Street and what we have in Nashville, game-changing developments that, you know, game-changing mixed use developments that you know, I think if you're trying to do a quick flip, maybe, you know, that's become more complicated when you get this late cycle, the quick flips are more complicated to do. They can still happen, but we're really saying, okay, we know this is going to be a great product long-term. We're long-term ownership. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something you can do as you get later cycle. You look at, all right, what's my cost? What's my build basis here? Am I going to be okay? Yeah, I'm going to be okay. So as long as your capital partners are on board with you and buy into that business plan, that's the key. And you know, right now though, too, it's really hard to find yield in the world. I mean, I don't know if you saw, there was an article a few days ago about the most capital ever raised to invest in the U.S. internationally happened, you know, in the last year, $900 billion. And all, this is all foreign money coming It's alternatives. In, where else are they the going to invest? Yeah. yeah. So we're seeing, that's where you're seeing, you know, yields drop. I mean, there's multifamily yields now in some of these, Southeastern cities. Freeze. Yeah. 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 So the question is, what margin do you need to, to, to mitigate that risk? You know, if, if, if people are, you know, I mean, I, you know, that's I mean, been an interesting philosophy over the years that I've always tried to figure out. It's just, I think it's harder right now. I think, I think the merchant building outside of industrial is just more difficult right now because, you know, when you're doing an urban development, back to our, we, we both said multiple times, it's many years to get, you know, these yeah. things. I, we have deals that we've been in for 15 years. Yeah. And the company's 16 years old. I mean, just, so, you know, but if I know the underlying real estate is really good right. and I'm watching my leverage, preferably no leverage if it's land, you know, you're going to be fine. I mean, your, your multiple is going to be fine. You might not get the IRR you want to see, but, you know, but you can eat multiple. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, that's segue to the next question. In the development projects you manage, what are your, the best ways to mitigate risk in your opinion? Obviously, le- lower leverage is obviously a key thing. So what are the things? I think it's honestly, I, so much is done in pre-development. I mean, when we do a, let's pick an apartment project, for example, you know, it's an architect that we know and we've worked with before in some form or fashion and we trust. So we have a tight set of plans. When we do our general contract, you know, we're like 90 Five percent plus, you know, CDs. So these are, you know, these are really tight set of documents that they're bidding on. We make sure we get rid of as many uncertainties in their bid as possible. We have a really good general contract, and so when you hit the go button, you know, and you get your financing lined up with the financing side, I want to make sure I have as much flexibility on term as possible. So it's you know where there's minimal tests for those first one or two you know extensions. So you bind yourself. You start with a really good set of documents. You start the contract that, that that is giving you numbers that are real tight numbers. You make sure that you have financing that provide you flexibility down the road. And then let's start with building the right product in the right corner. 
And you start with that. So you mitigate as much possible risk as, 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 as in advance as possible. Yeah. You know, and, and, and listen, we, we've done a lot, a lot, a lot of development deals. But it has, doesn't, hasn't mean we haven't seen a problem here and there. But, you know, we're, we're, we, are, we are very good at development. You know, we're, we're pretty good. I have a good team. And, and when we, we push the go button, you know, it, it's tight. It's a tight set of deal. It doesn't mean that you don't use contingency. That's why you, that's why you have contingency. I mean, you know, we all have blind spots. Yeah, and, and I would say, like, on average, we don't end up using it all, but we never, we never do not use some of it. You always use some of it. That's what's there for. Absolutely. That's why it's in all these budgets. Yeah, I, I tell some, I tell some, you know, especially with some of the, the, the with certain partners, would be like, you know, it's there for a reason. You know, if it, if I didn't think we we're going to use it, it, wouldn't be there. Well, we're sitting in one of the major yeah. projects that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Contingencies yes. were wiped out. Well, real think about quick. that. I mean, all these, all these, all these cargos. <laughs> you, you say you're never going to use in a lease. You know, like uh, oh yeah. You know, condemnation. You know, oh, yeah. oil, you know, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think there's a clause in a lease that I haven't seen either personally have been involved in, or other clients or people that I know have seen or worked with. Everyone of bankruptcy, all the workout yeah. language. And you have to be creative on, on the site sometimes with situations. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, and, and I think more often than not, I find that you're most successful when you can actually work through something and not have to start pointing to your, get your you know, you know, listen, everyone been, you know, you, you can't be in this business for 30 some odd years not having been through litigation, but I'm such a huge, not a fan of it. You know, the only ones that make money are the, the attorneys, but I'm a fan of trying to work through something and, if you're going to spend probably more money, you know, you're probably in the same spot after spending a lot of money on attorneys. How do you handle dispute resolutions? Just uh, personally, how do, how do you, not, not necessarily corporately, but personally, as far as dispute, and that could be internal. Too. Well, I, I think generally, you know, I'm pretty, I'm very, definitely very collaborative. So I'll get other people's thoughts and opinions, and then it helps you kind of, you need to call a reality check on yourself or call a reality check on someone else. And then I think generally, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that bothers me about our, our politicians today. I've never gotten a deal done with everything I want. No. So I have to negotiate and find a solution that allows us to move forward. That's why the frustration about some of these politicians that, you know, if they don't get it their way, they're not doing it. They're going to shut everything down. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Business work that way? Thank God they're not businessmen. <laughs> no, but their agenda is not to solve the problem. I know. It's, that's the so issue. And that's why I, I studied political science and realized that it's it's not a productive use of time. <laughs> uh, it's frustrating. And I, 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 I actually have literally seen it where I know they know what the right answer is. Of course they do. And they're just not going to do it because the optic is just not good for them. Right. And even though you know, they're, it, I mean, the they're supposed to be the there yeah, to like take care of their, their voters. You, know, you want to align the incentives and yeah. they're not aligned. By the way, you know, most, most voters are out there working hard to, to feed their families and stuff, and they don't have the time, nor is it their job, to figure out the details are and figure out why, although this may not sound good, this is good for you. Why the opposite of this aren't really great, but this is why this is good for you. I mean, and a lot of, uh, there, are, there are some great leaders out there that, and I'm, and I'm talking whether it's the national level or the, the jurisdiction level, you know, down here, and whether it's Arlington or in the district. And there's ones that aren't, aren't so great, you know, but that's always, I guess, the way it's going to be. I'm not of course. Yeah. Of course. So let's shift to personal things. What are your life priorities among family work and giving back? Listen, I'm 100%. Um, you know, everyone here who works for me knows that if there's a family issue, family goes first. 
just not even because you know how do you how do you focus on uh, your job if you're worried about your family and you're not able to address what your family needs now obviously there are responsibilities everybody has that you know but if someone has a family issue we're always going to be supportive of them mm-hmm. we've got a priority for them and then we'll do what we can do to help and then what about giving back what's your what's your priorities there um i i think a couple of things you know i mentioned before as a company the affordable housing mm-hmm. i'm on the board of habitat for humanity dc which is which has been great it's a great organization i pick it somehow on those lines because it's easier for me to i know i know those businesses so i can actually you know very much you know help out so you're proactive you you get involved in yeah things. Okay. yeah good yeah that's great so the next one i'm i think you're going to I know one of the, th- the answers to this, but I'll just keep it. What are your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events? You know, I always think about, obviously, the most significant one for me was the Harvard, just being Getting this there. project. Because you might imagine, you know, we had that press all over out there. I'm sure. kind of wearing a hoodie, trying to sneak through the back door. So, <laughs> so, so I wasn't getting interviewed. And so being able to come out of here and take care of our tenants, Take care of our partner and show really, you know, outside return was was just great. It was it was it was good for our brand. It was good for you know everyone on our team. Our biggest loss would be you know we, we did not lose any buildings during the 08 recession, great, great recession. We did have to renegotiate debt on a couple of deals. We learned a lesson that I hopefully will never learn again about not putting debt on land. You know, <laughs> so, Smart. shouldn't have happened at all. Otherwise, but and then you know I I think I think we got a little bit over our skis and how we our co-working investment where we just kind of got out there a bit and started looking at some WeWork valuations. And whereas, you know, it, it, it's a, anytime I hear paradigm shift, I should know just to like stop <laughs> and reevaluate. But uh, the positive, and again, as I said before, I'm, I'm a pretty positive person. And the positive about our experience there is that we, we did really were able to, I think, perfect our office building skills and be a thought leader in office. And that's helped us. If we're going forward now, we're, you know, incorporating a lot of these, you know, kind of our ways to, our responses to some of the problems inherent with office. And I, I think we would not have been good at that if we hadn't got to beat up a bit and really got the experience in the co-working business. I assume that the biggest surprise in your career might might have been the flood here, but were there some other ones that were for things that came out of left field that you never... How about positive ones? Our investment in MRP Industrial, that's just been amazing. Those guys are tremendous developers and it's it, best positive surprise probably probably the best investment we've done as a, as a company be investing in those guys good returns there yeah great returns there and uh and great partners and then you know other wins i mean i think about we sold mill road which was a, a building down in old town alexandria we sold part of it to asco which was the uh, association for clinical oncologists and then we sold the top half to uh, a capital partner, investor. And we got the distribution for that in April of 08. Wow, timing. Yeah. So that was one of those things. That if that hadn't happened, I don't know if we would have made it through. The other positive surprise in addition to that was uh, Hartford Building. I mentioned that we bought that with Angela Gordon, our first deal since early 07. Bought that in the middle of 09. We sold it 18 months later for a $40 million profit. Wow. Also, great timing, right? Because it's coming 18 months after we got in the distribution. On, uh, actually, more than two and a half years after we got in the uh, road distribution. And those little things are the things that give you the 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 oxygen, you know, continue to grow the business and push it forward. That's uh, awesome. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, Bob? 
You know, I, and I, I talk to these, all my young guys, but I, I think, listen, you know, really make sure you learn your craft and then learn to grow and perfect your, your skills and your craft. Make sure you are not just looking at your local paper. Make sure you're looking at national, international news and because everything affects us nowadays in this global economy we have. So, so really understanding, you know, you may be dealing with this particular issue on this particular deal, but understanding where that came from and, and how these things will impact you. And I'd look at our company and I, I will talk to our team here, you know, a few times a year, but, you know, I always think about what do I want? What did I want when I was working, I was younger, I wanted a place where I woke up every day and I liked going to work, look forward to it. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that that's what we offer to our people. What does that mean? Well, it means that you feel you're adequately compensated. You feel like you're challenged and you're learning and you feel like there's opportunity for you. You know, and what I want back, I want someone who really focuses on learning their craft, focuses on growing personally and making sure they not only learn it, but perfect it. And they, you know, keep making it better and better. I don't want someone that shares our values you know, um, as a company. And that's, that's a good, if you can do put that together, it's, it's, it's a great mix. And it makes for fun, successful business. So if you could post a statement on a, on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say about? You know, I've been watching Ted Lasso. I love that show. And you know, the sign he has above the locker room. Have you watched the show yet? I haven't yet. Oh, you no. have to watch it. He, he, he posts a sign above the above the door to his office from the locker room. And then he has one like sitting on his mirror back home. Believe. Believe. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned signs. And I think of two signs that come to mind. And it goes to your alma mater and mine. So I went to the University of Michigan. Oh, there you go. And Notre Dame has a sign, I think, in the locker room, right? And I can't remember exactly what it says for the football players play as like they go champion. out on the field. Play like a champion. Yeah. And Michigan is the team, the team, the team. Yeah. I like this. Very good. You know, but uh, well, Johnny, it, this has been fun. Bob, this is long, thank huh? You. Thank you very much yeah. for your time. Yeah. It's been great. Really I, great. I come across okay. Don't sound like an idiot out there. Very good. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So we just listened to Bob Murphy of MRP Realty. Bob is uh, just a energetic, high energy guy that I really enjoyed talking with, and uh, and I, I usually do. I'm bringing in my sidekick, Colin Madden. <clears throat> He's going to give us uh, his perspective and on the conversation. Colin. Hey, hey, John, how are you? Uh, thanks. Good. For, yeah, I, I enjoyed this one very much. Again, I thought it was very you know, informative. He seemed like a very nice, approachable, humble guy, down to earth, with a lot of great experience that was very interesting to hear. You know, how he got through problems, how he kind of pivoted sometimes and got, got into new industries and was surprised by certain decisions he made based on those industries. And yeah, I just found it a lot of it fascinating and, and just kind of a pleasant and enjoyable, you know, conversation. To start, I'll kind of hone in on some of the last few questions you had with him. The first is the sign and I kind of want to diverge and talk a little bit about Ted Lasso because he brought that up and I know you said you hadn't watched it, but I also cannot recommend that show enough. I think it's, I don't know, it's, it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. It's, it's almost as if like Yogi Berra had his own sitcom type. <laughs> it's very, very wide, like every... Every scene is like very wise and quirky and very funny, but there's also like a lot of depth to the characters. So I think they're, they're just cleaning up at, at Emmy nominations and rightfully so because it is so good. But yeah, the, the sign believe I thought 
was a, was, was a good sign to put on the highway. And I thought it was interesting that the Notre Dame connection in Michigan and the play like a champion and actually Meridian has the play like a champion framed in our office that, that is signed by one of the teams. I don't know which ones. I thought that connection was, was interesting, but yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on kind of that, the, that sign, like believe and kind of play like a champion. What, what do you, and, and Bob, clarify, it, yeah. would your sign be the, what's Michigan? It's like the team, the team, the team. Is that the team, the team, the team. So yes. is that your, uh, that's Bo Schembechler. Okay. Is yes. that what we use for the billboard? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, as you know, Kyle and I are building a community right now called Iconic Journey. I feel that the 100 people that I hope we bring on to this new cohort will be like a team mm-hmm. and that we all play together well and we coordinate amongst each other and learn and, you know, learn from each other and build upon each other. So, you know, I, I'm a big sports fan. I didn't, I don't have the skills to play that well. I know that Bob is a rugby player and played at Notre Dame rugby and came to Ann Arbor and played against Michigan and said, mm-hmm. but you can tell by his demeanor and his religious background and his, you know, the way he, he talks about things and team building and relationships with people are critical to him going mm-hmm. forward. And, and you get a sense he's so much energy and so much verve to his conversation that it'd be an energetic and a lot of fun place to work, to work at his company. Uh, he'd keep things very lively. He's got a very quick mind and, and a quick wit. I mean, he's, a, he's like three steps ahead of you. Good conversation. He's so fast. That's the one thing I did notice about him. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how he said that he's like very good at judging people very and bringing in the right team. And I think that's such an important skill at, at companies. And when you hire well, it, it really makes a huge difference in an organization. But I, yeah, I wanted to dig into what he was saying about you know, how he thinks about like, employing people and said, what do you want when you go to work? Do you want to like, look forward to going to work and like going to work? There has to be like, you have to be providing them the offer of, like, of good compensation, challenging, uh, opportunity to learn, and opportunity to focus on the craft and then more broadly, like shared values with, with the organization. And that's why I think culture is so important, especially at, at smaller organizations. It kind of ties into like Maslow's hierarchy of needs where at the very bottom of the pyramid is the physiological needs of like food, water, sleep, warmth. Then you're into safety of just security and safety. Then once you start climbing up, it comes into like belongingness and love, like friends and relationships. Then above that is the steam of feeling of accomplishments and mm-hmm. prestige. So this is, we're into like the psychological territory. And then at the top of Maslow's hierarchy needs is self-fulfillment needs where you're achieving one's full potential and, you know, providing them creative opportunities to learn and grow. And I think, and I'm not like an expert, but I feel like hiring has now reached the top of this hierarchy of needs. I think before, you know, hundred years ago, it was, it was basically just food. Then you started getting food and safety. And then you started having jobs where you had friends and intimate relationships. And as we've progressed as a society and basically more, more so like a capitalistic society, we're now competing at the very top of offering to get these employees. And I think he, it sounded like he gets that. So I thought, I thought that was interesting. And I saw a post on LinkedIn the other day of, of someone who works. I think she's like, I guess you'd say like a professional influencer more or less. 
she works for Amazon and they're like AI department, but she brought up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And basically she was saying like nap pods are dead. It's, it's really like, how do you, how do you give the most back to your, your employees to, to fully, you know, support them from like mental health to good health, health care to like good childcare to even, even like elderly care support. And I feel like that's where a hiring is and, and like, you know, truly employing people, you have to be competing at the, at those levels of, of support. But B, it's like, I, I also think that landlords are, are in a position to f- help fill this gap for employees. And I think we're, we're kind of at an interesting position where a landlord is becoming more, more and more involved with its, its tenant base. And there's a lot of small tenants out there that might not have the financial means to, to give this type of support, but that's when the landlord can step in and, you know, perhaps, have partnerships with healthcare, have partnerships with mental, mental health, mm-hmm. have more events where you're meeting people and cross pollinizing with, uh, with other companies where before you kind of, you signed the lease and kind of stepped away from the tenant, never really involved. But now, now it seems like it's becoming hyper competitive to hire and you now have to be meeting these needs for employees to attract talent. Well, office building developers and owners have the same challenge right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, analogous to that and that, you know, they're hiring tenants and Mm -hmm. uh, tenants are asking themselves, do I really need to go to the office every day now? Mm -hmm. So they're reducing their their needs to go in. Just today, I read that the GSA is going to be cutting their office use dramatically. There's some big leases coming up. USPTO and Alexandria was one that was cited. Two and a half million square feet there that they may not renew. So from an employment standpoint, it's similar. You've got to make it attractive to work there. And just like an office owner has to make it attractive to want to go to work. Right. It isn't it isn't a necessity anymore mm-hmm. to do it. So, you know, there's too much competition, there's too many distractions, too many other ways to do things that it's an interesting analogy and it's an interesting challenge today for, mm-hmm. for both uh, all industry, all businesses to hire people and retain them and, and all office building owners to, to lease tenants and, and hold on to them yeah, exactly. for longer than a short period of time. Yeah. And it's just like a, a very similar position. Like it's, it's, it's very competitive to hire talent and retain talent where it's also now very hard to get tenants and retain tenants. Exactly. So, so commercial real estate is really becoming less and less of a commodity. It's becoming more and more of a commodity, but also the servicing is becoming less and less of a commodity. So you have to provide these offerings to, to not get labeled as a commodity and you're just office space, but you're really like an experience, your network, your, your support, your, a friend, really. You, you can't afford to be a commodity anymore, right. not just as an office user or owner, but and an office building, but as a as a company, as a mm-hmm. hiring, you can't commoditize your business. You can't slot people in to to do industrial type mechanical work. Right. You have to make it interesting to people to, to want to come in and do the job. Right. So yeah, I thought. His answer just to that simple question, I thought was actually like way deeper than it might have sounded. Yes. It sounded like he really, he gets that. Like we're now at, at the, 
the level of self-actualization and self-fulfillment. And we're, we get that and we're competing because of that. So the question is, what do you do to, to self-actualize your employees? Mm-hmm. And how do, you, how do you inspire them to learn and grow right. individually? Right. Yeah, I don't know the answer. I know I know some companies are exploring with like learning budgets and stuff like that, but it's it's more than just knowing the nuts and bolts of what you do every day. You're gonna go through challenges, problems, things are gonna come out of left field or that you don't know about, unknowns. How do you handle those unknowns? How do you handle un- unexpected surprises? That's hard to learn unless you go through them and withstand them if you can. Build yeah. resiliency to do it. Right. Some things you just can't teach. You have to go through them yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also particularly liked his answer to what advice to his 25-year-old self that, you know, learn your craft, look at all the local newspapers, but then go beyond that to international newspapers. Because, like, you'll have issues on a specific deal, he said, but you have to really learn where that problem came from. And usually it's not, usually the first answer to the problem is not the one that first pops into your head, but a lot of people think it is and then run with that. You really have to think through what's the ultimate root of the problem and, and then try to solve that. And it's that's like the second order of thinking that I, I found interesting. And I thought that was good advice. Sort of like, I, I don't even know what the story comes from, but it's there's like a group of people by a river and the body is like coming down the river and someone has to go and rescue it. He saves that person. Another one comes. He saves that person. Another one comes. He saves that person. And then someone's witnessing and, and runs up. And the guy who's rescuing all these people is saying, where are you going? Why aren't you helping me? And he's like, I'm going to go stop the guy throwing all these people in the river. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like you, you think the problem is someone's drowning, but the real problem is someone's throwing someone in the, in the river up upstream. But That's first you know, principles. Yeah. So that's why, you know, you can't just read the local newspaper. You have to read international and kind of tie all the all the trends together these days i feel like well especially in a city like washington dc in this market because of all the cities in the country well new york washington los angeles and san francisco have probably the most international interface you know because they're port cities or they're government cities major federal government cities Mm -hmm. and commerce cities would it's do more international commerce than any other. So in Washington, it's a government city, but we deal with every government that is free in this world. We deal with just about every government, regardless whether they're free or not. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily friendly, but we deal with them. And so impacts that happen internationally have direct, sometimes indirect, but sometimes mm-hmm. direct implications on the local real estate market. Right. So, you know, Bob may have something that he's negotiating a lease with somebody that has a big contract with a foreign government. That contract goes away because there's some kind of a treaty that didn't didn't happen. He loses the opportunity on the lease. You know, right. there's all these things that happen here in Washington that are unique. You know, em- there's embassy uses. There are all kinds of th- has aspects with regard to foreign governments and, and trade that may not make sense from a business standpoint, but they're political reasons that things happen. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily have economic impact except to the, to the people that have direct need, like a user or a something, you know, say, well, I don't need the space because we don't have a relationship anymore. 
Yeah. And I, I think that not just from like a uh, landlord perspective, but also from a tenant perspective, I think tenants are realizing that they also, the world's moving so fast and they can't plan more than two or three years out in advance. No. Before you could say, you know, this is our size. This is our revenue growth. We're going to be here in 15 years. And it's, it usually happened. I don't know about usually, but it, it probably happened more often than not. In today's world, it's, it's extremely unpredictable. Things, things kind of get disrupted on a rapid pace. And I think that's why we are seeing a lot of tenants wary of signing long-term leases. And I think both sides of the, of the business are dealing with that fact. And we're, I think both sides are also struggling to find the perfect solution because now, now the business plan changes and your, your wallet is, is shrunk, but maybe your services are better than the competition. So although your wallet might be smaller than previous years, you might be more sticky because you rolled out XYZ. So I, I think we're kind of in a convergent moment where uh, we're all trying to feel it out and the capital market's trying to feel it out. And, uh, yeah, I think. Well, I think, you know, we're, we're flooded with capital worldwide. And the Fed has driven a lot of that with their very loose monetary policies and financing. So, you know, the capital's out there. The question is, is it being deployed in a way that offsets the risks that you're talking about? You know, without long-term leases on office buildings, is it, make, is it a safe bet? To have that much turnover and risk associated with a building to invest in that property long term, it's expensive. And is it is it a profitable venture? You have to ask yourself, especially in a over oversaturated vacancy market with where you just can't afford to increase rents. It's tough to make the numbers pencil. Uh, we're talking only office here. This is probably the same in retail as well. Uh, industrial has almost infinite demand right now. So you could convert every office building to an industrial building if it worked, but it doesn't work. No. And everybody has to live physically somewhere. So I think residential real estate almost has a built-in floor, but commercial real estate is pretty volatile right now. Yeah, it's definitely a very dynamic, I would say. They really, I think things are moving really fast. Everyone's, everyone's get going more technological, getting apps, time building yep. together. So it's interesting to hear about his his opinion on heyday and, the, and their app and their passport offering that you know their tenants can use the conference center at different buildings and stuff like that. And I think that is that is the offering to to provide some of those needs the of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and seeing that that demand and meeting it is how you mean competitive, I guess. He has to adapt. And as the tenancy changes, he's adapting his business accordingly. He's growing his industrial business. He's growing his residential business. He continues in the office space, but he's readapting some of his space accordingly to make it work. So he stays on top of things, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's most most of the items I wanted to touch on. Okay. You had any uh, questions for me or anything you wanted to dive into? No, I think that that handles it for, for that with, with Bob and listeners. Thank you for listening to this. I'm going to now once again bring up what Colin and I are working on right now. And it's known as the iconic journey in CRE, which is for 
commercial real estate professionals, 22 to 40 years old. It's a community of up to 100 people. I'm looking to have people sign up by mid-September when it's going to roll out. The community will start on September 15th. I've set the date now, and I'm looking for people to sign up. I will have a way to sign up probably right after Labor Day. In the interim, if you're interested, write me at john, J-O-H-N, at coenterprises.com and reach out if you're in the, within that range. And if you're older than 40, please recommend to me one or two people from your organization or people that you know that might be interested in doing this. And I'm excited about it. And it really basically takes the podcasts that I've done, the episodes. This is number 50. So of the 50, all the episodes, I've accumulated a lot of knowledge and interest and hopefully sharing that with, with the members of the community. Anything you want to add, Colin? No, I, I think we're both excited about it. I think you and I both are kind of passionate about small kind of network communities that are, are thinking differently about you know, multi, multidisciplinary approach to the industry. And I think it is such a uh, dynamic and diverse industry. And you get you know engineers, to designers, to architects, all kind of in the same room all the time. There's so, many, so much to learn from each other and so much creati- creativity that I think we kind of want to create that environment where it's, it's just like a, a conversation and kind of a feedback loop of exchange of ideas. And yeah, I'm excited. Hopefully uh, anyone out there who, who's interested, definitely reach out to John. Okay. Well, thank you, Colin. And thank you listeners for uh, another episode. Uh, we will come out with our next episode probably towards the end of September because I'm going to, Colin and I will be busy with uh, getting the community up and running mid September. So it'll wait, you know, it'll be about three to four weeks for the next episode. So thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you on the next one.